Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. Lock the gate! All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. How's it going? I'm on the road. Where am I reporting from? I'm about three stories up in a hotel in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's the day before you're listening to this, and I'm about to do my last show of this little four-city run that I've been on. It's been pretty great. It's been pretty great. Can't can't say I've been eating well, but you know I'm not going to fester about that. Uh, you know, life is short. Why not make it shorter? Byron Allen is on the show today. Yes, that Byron Allen, and it's it's uh, deeper and more interesting than you would. Uh, I don't even know. If he, I'm not even going to make any assumptions that you made any assumptions. But Byron Allen is on the show today, and it's a good talk. So that said, let me get this out of the way. A little bit of business. I added some dates in Los Angeles. I'll be uh, at the Dynasty Typewriter, which is a small room working out the show again and again. Don't look if you're in L.A. and you you know you've seen me a few times. Save it up, all right? Maybe maybe don't you know sit one out because I'm going to need you at the special taping. I believe I'll be taping the special in Los Angeles, probably in October or November. Probably November. I'll let you know. It's a little. We're not sure yet. We're, we're, we're deciding on spaces, all right? But it is not going to be in Boston. I don't mean to disappoint you if you thought you were going to be part of the special taping in Boston, but we couldn't manage to do something we wanted to do with a camera. They, w- they wouldn't let us remove the walls of the entire structure so we could have easier movement. That's no one's fault. It wasn't about walls, but it's not going to be taping there. We'll be taping in Los Angeles, but I will be a Dynasty typewriter October 5th and 6th. And also, uh, I'm heading to Philadelphia the 10th, Washington, D.C. the 11th, and Boston the 12th. That's October, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Then Nashville, Atlanta, and San Francisco, October 18, 19, and 26th. Go to WTFPod.com slash tour and uh, come out and see me. It's very exciting. I've got a very exciting big closer that I think even I think even the comic book nerds would enjoy. Uh, we got some new swag, some new stuff, some new merch. Uh, there's a new WTF hoodie. There's a new uh, 
Aaron Draplin keychain with the uh, Draplin uh, logo for the new uh, with my face and the colors. There's a stainless steel coffee mug and there's more merch coming. You can go to podswag.com slash WTF or go to WTFpod.com and click on merch and get that shit going. So an update on Monkey. I don't, I don't think I gave you one. The doctor got back to me. The vet got back to me. And Monkey does not have diabetes. He does not have kidney disease. He has hyperthyroid. And we've got pills going for it. My buddy Frank, who's watching the house, uh, has started giving Monkey the pills for the hyperthyroid. Hopefully, uh, you know, we can push it back. But uh, it is good that it's not diabetes or kidney disease and that he's eating and still seems lively. This is a 16-year-old motherfucker, this cat. And uh, I'm not going to say he's tough, but, you know, he's lean and he's full of energy and he's lively. So that's the cat update. Buster's fine. LaFonda's fine. That being said, I've been on sort of a a little bit of a, a whirlwind tour here. Went to Toronto. Rosebud Baker opened for me. She was great. She was doing the festival up there. This is for JFL 42. And there was, you know, I had mild panic. I always have mild panic because I'm not an arena act. I'm not gunning to be an arena act. But uh, but that was a 3,000-seater, and I was nervous about it. But we ended up pulling in about 2,200 at least, and it was a great crowd. I love Canada. I don't know how many times I got to say that. I guess until they run me out of the U.S. Oh, really? I have to go to Canada? Darn I, did, I just uh, I'm relaxed up there, and the show was great. All the shows have been good. And then the following day, I went from Canada down to Chicago, sold out the Vic. That's been sold out a while. I didn't want to add an extra show because I'm a dick like that. Uh, I just It's so nice to have a big, beautiful, full show. I probably could have next time, Chicago. I'll do it next time. But thanks for coming out to the Vic. That's a great venue, great show. Jonah Ray opened for me there. Then we flew to Detroit. And I was nervous about Detroit just because of Detroit. I don't, you know, you know I, I've only heard things that made me worry about Detroit. And it's bouncing back, it seems. Uh, it's a little trippy to be there. This The venue there was this, it's, it's the Masonic Temple. But I think it's the biggest Masonic Temple in the world or the country or it used to be. And there are these huge venues within it. There's a, the theater I did, which seats about 1,800, and then there's another larger Masonic theater within it that seats a few thousand. And these were, I think, built for Masonic rituals. I mean, these were rooms filled with men for, for probably you know a, a century just doing their weird stuff, their weird fraternal order, cult-like brotherhood rituals. And I'm not going to say ghosts, but... I don't know how many times you've really taken in a ritual space. They do have some power on their own. And the Masonic power, given that I was prone to conspiracy uh, thinking back in the day when uh, I had not quite uh, come out of the tunnel of uh, cocaine psychosis, I was pretty sure the Masons were involved in the big picture. There's a lot of evidence, a lot of sketches, a lot of uh, speculation, retroactive speculation. Easy to connect the dots when they're all behind you, isn't it? Yeah. But uh, that was before I realized uh, that it all ends up with the Jews being the puppet masters. And I I gotta gotta tell you, that's not true. Uh, And I'm pretty fucking sure about it. But uh, nonetheless, to be in these uh, in this ritual space, uh, churches, synagogues, if you go to Italy and you go into any of those old cathedrals in the middle of nowhere in Italy that were put up 
by the ruling power of the Catholic Church and you walk into those places, it's no wonder every peasant, every person, anybody who uh, walked in with their dirty shoes looking for an answer was just crushed by and in awe of the beauty and spectacle of the place, man. And all ritual spaces have a certain vibe to it. Granted, usually there's some sort of uh, altar or podium or pulpit. But the Masonic ritual space, the lights are a little weird. It's a little deco, a little gothic, a little fucked up. It was heavy, man. There's a darkness to it. I'm not saying it's a creepy darkness, but it's a legit darkness. And uh, I was pretty frank about it. There was moments there where... You know, I thought I'd done some riff when I was up on stage about dying on stage. And if I happened to kick it on the Masonic Temple stage in Detroit, it would probably be full circle for the ritual that we don't know about, which is the the dying of the Jew on the altar. So it would have been closure for some Masonic cycle that I was making up. Pretty funny riff. Glad it didn't happen. So Detroit was a trip. Had a Coney dog. Not necessary. But I did it, uh, Jonah and I, before the show in Chicago, plowed through uh, Lou Malnati's uh, deep dish, as I do in Chicago. So it's not great, but I, I will share this with you. I am uh, one month off the fucking nicotine. One month. And it's it's okay. Got a little bit of a sore throat right now. I don't know what's going on. Yeah, I'm getting old. I don't know what, I don't know. It's weird when you start to look at yourself. You know when you, when someone's president for two terms and uh, God forbid, that, let's not let that happen. I didn't mean to, mean to say that at this particular time in history. But you know when a president that's all of a sudden looks like an old man and you don't know when it happens, looks like it almost happens overnight. I think it might have happened to me like uh, last week. I, my, I don't know what night it was, but I woke up and my face was uh, old. It's it. My beard's a little grayer and I'm starting to see myself maybe because of the lack of nicotine. I'm starting to see myself clearly. Uh, Maybe it's it's harder for me to be my endorphins to be all jacked and to me to have for me to have some sort of nicotine tinted glasses to where I'm not quite fully aware of who I am in my life and in my world and in the time arc of of uh, my being. But uh but it's looking, I'm, I can see it clearly. It's not bad, not complaining, but I think I, I turned a corner and I'm going to be, I'm going to be 56 in exactly um, four days. I can't fucking believe that. It's so fucking weird, you guys. I'm going to be 56. I'm not even freaking out about it. I'm not complaining about it, but I don't feel any different. And my mother always says that. And I don't know. I never, you know, I, but it's true. She's like, I oh, I can't say how old she is, but she, she always says how she doesn't feel any different. I don't feel that much different either, but I can look at the vessel. The vessel is getting worn. The vessel is wearing down. All right. So look, I, what have I been doing? I've been rewatching Breaking Bad and it's fucking great. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a television show. But back when I watched it, you know, I waited every week. You wait week to week, and it was exciting to do that. And I still think that's really the best way to enjoy television, you know, because you, you, you there's suspense involved, and you, you get excited for the week, and it gives you something to do at the same time every week. You know, this is not, you know, it, it was a community thing. You didn't have to see the rest of the community, but you, you were pretty sure that everybody was kind of watching, and that still happens in some ways, it seems. But... It's great to watch them one after the other, just to burn through them. What a satisfying, fucking amazing show. That's all I got to say uh, about that. I'm watching Breaking Bad again. 
It's not a plug. It's not anything. It, it just, and I'm, it's, it's, I'm saturated in it. I'm soaking in Breaking Bad. And it's weird when you watch four episodes of Breaking Bad and then you pull out into the real world, you got some pretty skeevy fucking goggles on, man. So Byron Allen, many of you may know Byron Allen from uh, way back from Real People was, I think, the first big show he was on, Byron Allen, Real People. But before that, he was a comic, and before that, he was a sort of a, a child prodigy comic in a way, which I didn't know. I'd seen a picture recently that someone had sent me of Byron Allen. He must have been 15 or 16 years old, sitting with, uh, I think, David Letterman and uh, Jimmy Walker at the Comedy Store. So I'm like, what the fuck? This, this story runs deep. I should get into that, hear that out. And uh, and then I heard like you know he's got a billion dollars and he you know he owns the Weather Channel. I'm like this is getting a little crazy. All I know is that Byron Allen was one of those dudes who late at night you'd be flipping through TV channels and you'd be like Byron Allen's still on TV. What is Byron Allen have a show still? What is this show? And then he's got Comics Unleashed, which I think has been running forever that I did years ago, where uh, he was he famously would uh, set you up for jokes just by going. I hear you have a bit about uh, podcasting. I hear you do a podcast. Just the most direct throwing to bits. It, almost, it, it was almost funny in, in the wrong way. But that's on TV, and I, occasionally I get checks for a dollar or a nickel from doing Comics Unleashed. But it just became this thing where, and then Jason Zinneman from the New York Times is like, what is Byron Allen's story? So I'm like, you know what? Let's find out. Let's talk to Byron Allen. And I did that. I am now going to share that conversation with you. So in addition to all of the TV projects this company has launched, uh, the Local Now app, which is a mobile app and a streaming network for lifestyle, news, weather, traffic, and entertainment, uh, he's launched that too. This guy's into a, a lot of stuff. and uh, But the comedy history was kind of, was kind of interesting to me because as you know if you listen to this show we do we do we are running sort of a a comedy history of that's mostly focused on the comedy store in that place a history of the comedy store i'm going to talk to some other old timers too from there because there's still a few i got to get argus hamilton is coming that's a deep tease uh yeah argus hamilton I've, I've scheduled a conversation with argus who did not want to do the show he did not want to do a long-form interview until uh, Mitzi Shore passed. Now she's gone. I, I don't think it means that he's going to you know, talk dirt, but just out of respect, I guess. So Argus is coming. But right now I got Byron. This is me talking to Byron out. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called the Foxed page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. 
Byron Allen sitting right in front of me. <laughs> Unbelievable. All right. I'm pretty excited about it. You know, because you, you've come up in conversation. I've interviewed a lot of your uh, old friends, probably. Maybe they're friends. People mention you. I've had Binder on. I've oh. had Jimmy on. Jimmy Walker on. Okay. I've had Letterman on. <laughs> I've had Dreesen on. Uh, like I have this weird bit of... Uh, of, uh, of uh, wow. Wow, Mitzi Shore's driver's license. Yeah, what is that? Does it? <laughs> wow, you're gonna keep. You have to frame this. Why is it just sitting on your desk like it's nothing? I have this woman changed my life, right? Oh yeah, isn't that wild to hold that? Because like I, you know, I was a doorman at the store in the late '80s, so like I, I sort of have. I don't have the same relationship with her or the idea of her that you do, but right. still, like she weighs pretty large in your head right <laughs> yeah, absolutely i mean i showed that to letterman he was like oh my god a crime's been committed i found that <laughs> i found that on the floor at the comedy store when we were in her office mike binder is doing a, a documentary on the store right yeah yeah did he talk to you yeah yeah oh yeah. he did he he did he gave me a he, we, we did a great interview together he had a lot of fun but that that's family you had all of my family on kind of right oh my god are you kidding me these are people i've known for 44 years but where did you come from i mean where did you how did you show up in la where i mean because i i know that you you landed at the store but where did it start Detroit, Michigan. I was born in Detroit. I'm going there next week. Are you? Yeah. Great town. Yeah. Phenomenal town. Have you been there lately? It's been a while. But I. <laughs> but it's an amazing town. When I was born there, I was yeah. born there April 22nd, 1961. A great day for me. Yeah. Uh, Henry Ford Hospital. Yeah. And uh, it was, uh, you know, it was magical. We, Do you remember it? Oh, are you kidding me? We made cars for the world and music for you the world. You did personally? Yes. I personally, <laughs> when I was a baby, I was a baby and I went straight to the Ford factory. I was born in Henry Ford Hospital. And I said, I don't need this hospital. I'm going right to the factory. I'm going to go work with my dad who worked there for, my dad worked at Ford Motor Company for over 30 years. He did? Oh, yeah. And my grandfather worked at Great Lake Steel for over 30 years. These guys, I couldn't wait to go to work with them uh they never called in a day sick really never they, so your old man like was a, a lifer at ford all, all of it every, in my whole neighborhood yes yeah. my dad my grandfather i couldn't wait to put a uniform on and go to one of the factories with my father or my grandfather and make cars and then after they made cars i'm sorry that didn't work out for you byron because it's, it's been a rough go for you <laughs> you know it was one of those things like when am i and i used to watch my dad leave and i go i can't wait to go with you yeah and we're gonna have our nice little brown paper bag lunch <laughs> and i'm gonna go there and it was uh it was definitely one of my very first dreams and, and when they came home yeah you know they would make cars in the driveway I would really. Oh, oh yeah. you mean oh, so that th that would be the hobby as well. Oh, they would build cars. I mean, yeah. they would take start with a screw, right, and then a little a bolt, and yeah. then just build. And next thing you know, like yeah. eight months later, there's a car in the driveway. You, got, and, you yeah, know, they would just sure. make it from scrap. And they're and, doing hot rods and shit. Oh, or? they doing everything. And uh, but you're a kid. You were so young. Right? I was a kid. I was a kid. I mean, those are some of my fondest memories. You know, Detroit, Michigan, in the '60s. You got Sit brothers and sisters? I have a half-brother who's yeah. phenomenal. He's a really good person. He's a pilot. And I would sit on the porch yeah. in Detroit and, right. and listen to the radio with my grandfather and listen to the Tigers play. Yeah. And I didn't even know you could go to a baseball game. Right. right? I, I just saw, uh, oh my. It came out of the radio. It just came out of the radio. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so I would just sit there and I would just listen to the games. And those are just some of my fondest memories. And we have, but how'd you end up here? What happened? You know, uh, my mother and father got a divorce when I was really young. I mean, you look, 
Uh, my mother got pregnant with me when she yeah. was 16 years old. Wow. Had me 17 days after her 17th birthday. Yeah. So on paper. So you grew up together. Oh, yeah. We grew up together. <laughs> so on paper, I didn't look very good. Yeah. You know, you're, you're talking about a little black baby born to a, a black teenage girl in 1961. You wouldn't bet on that kid. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, you would not bet on that kid. <laughs> so uh, my mother and father get a divorce. We had the, the, the Detroit riots, right? So yeah. they assassinated Martin. Like 69? So, yeah, 68. Yeah. So they they they, uh, they they assassinate Martin Luther King and uh, it was uh, it was quite shocking. I'll never forget that. Yeah, uh, I'm out in the middle. You're of like the street. seven or eight years old. Yeah, I'm out in the middle of the street playing baseball, and now I hear my mother and my grandmother screaming. Yeah. like I've never heard them scream oh. ever in my life. Right, right. And they just fall to the they fell to the ground. They killed him. They killed him. They killed him. Yeah. And the next thing I knew, literally, I got to tell you, Mark, like less than like two minutes later, yeah. I was looking down the street at a tank and troops coming towards me because right? uh, the military immediately took over our neighborhood. Right. It was yeah. like they knew this place was going to get lit up like a Christmas tree. Yeah. And the military, I mean, I was literally looking down the barrel of a tank. Eight years old. Yeah. I was uh, seven years old. Yeah. Seven years old. And they're coming down and the troops are walking on the grass with the rifles yeah. and the bayonets and yeah. they're like, you know, pointing the guns, get in, get in. Yeah. And uh, the place got lit up and my mother and I came out to visit some relatives, uh, summer of 68. Yeah. And uh, it was supposed to be a two-week vacation. Right. And never went back. Right. She so, loved it, huh? Yeah, she loved it. And it was uh, great out here. Just amazing, Los Angeles. And we just slept for a couple of years on a lot of sofas and a lot of floors. Really? Oh, yeah. And uh, wherever somebody was gracious enough. Family? To, family, let us have a bed or so. Yeah. And uh, it was amazing. So she ended up getting into UCLA, my mother. And she ended up going to UCLA and getting her master's degree in cinema TV production. Wow. So she's in her 20s. Yep, that's and right. And you're like eight or nine. And she's got a little baby, me, and she's got a little kid. And, and she's, she's doing single, it, though. She's doing it. She's a single mother. And we're out there, and she's uh, she gets into UCLA. And because she's at UCLA, she's able to get a job as yeah. an intern. She goes to NBC. Right. And she says, well, first, she got a job at the Salvation Army. Yeah. She was working over at the Urban League, and they told her about the Salvation Army. So she was giving away goods. Yeah. And she was helping families that right. were disadvantaged to get placed. Sure. And so they weren't homeless. And and uh, while she was going to UCLA, and uh, she went to NBC. Yeah. And she said, hey, do you have an intern? In Burbank. In Burbank. That's yeah. right. Do you have an intern program? And uh, they said, no, we don't. And yeah. she said, well, will you start one with me? <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> That's true. Yeah. And uh, they said, yes, we will. And that was the, the question that, say, that changed our lives. Wow. Will you start an intern program with me? And who, like for what show in general intern? Just to, uh, just to be an intern anywhere on the lot. So this is 1970? Yeah, uh, yeah, 72 or so. Anywhere on the lot. At NBC, uh huh, right, right yeah. here in Burbank, right. right. And she she goes there. She she becomes an intern, and people start to like her. Yeah, and they say, well, you know, maybe you should be a tour guide at the, at the studio, at the studio, yeah, right. and give tours, right. And uh, I'm out there with her. Uh, waiting for her to get off work because at this point, hey, you don't You're have eleven a, or twelve. You don't have a nanny. Yeah, yeah. At this point, I'm twelve or thirteen. Yeah, right? you don't have a nanny. Right. right? Yeah. So. We go. I go out there. I'm waiting for her to get off work, and I'm watching Johnny Carson do the Tonight Show. And then I would. You're just hanging around. Just hanging around. At NBC. At NBC. Yeah. yeah. Right. So I'm like 12, 13 years old. Then yeah. I walk across the hall, 
and I'm watching Red Fox do Sanford. Is that and true? Absolutely. I'm watching Red Fox do Sanford and Son. Then I go across the hall. I'm watching Flip Wilson do the Flip Wilson show. I could not make this up. <laughs> then I go down the hall and I'm watching Freddie Prince do Chico and the Man. And I'm just going all over NBC and I'm watching all of these shows. And I'm they watching, all knew you because they, you, they saw mom, I'm the kid that. Right. Yeah, yeah, His and, mom works here. Right. She yeah. later became a publicist. So I'm talking about a number of years here. Uh, she was an intern, a tour guy, then a publicist. How funny was Red Fox? Red Fox was amazing, amazing. So you're talking probably, what am I talking about? I'm probably talking about a eight to 10 year span. Yeah. So I'm out there and I'm watching Bob Hope do his specials. Yeah. And I'm watching Because you Richard. could get in for everything. Any, I just walk in. They knew yeah. me. All the, right. the crew, the cast, everybody knew me. You said and Richard? I, Richard who? Richard Pryor. So he was, he was doing, he did his specials out there and he did the Richard Pryor show, which was very short lived. The network specials? The yeah, the ones. network. Right, yeah, right. yeah. It was very, I'll never forget the opening. I learned so much being wallpaper yeah. at NBC yeah. starting at like age 12 yeah. and I'm just there and I'm watching the the watching the writers the producers really? the directors I mean were you just with this kid that's just hanging standing, around and I'm just absorbing everything yeah. and I'm I'm watching the crew and I'm watching the lighting guy and I'm watching everybody because you uh, just primarily because I love it but you but also your mom you just you had to wait for your mother I'm sitting there waiting for my mother to get <laughs> off work so I'm yeah. sitting there and I made NBC my playground yeah and I'm sitting there and I'm watching Bob Hope and I'm watching yeah, yeah. George Burns and I'm watching Rich Little they're all still alive. They're, That's right. they're all there. Then I'm walked down. I watch him do a soap opera, Days right. of Our Lives. I'm watching a young weatherman yeah. named Pat Sajak before he gets uh, before he gets Wheel of Fortune. I'm watching a young sportscaster named Bryant Gumbo before he gets the Today Show. Are you? They're all there. They're all there at NBC and KBC, right. and I'm just going and I'm watching all of this production being made these tv shows well, so I, when do you decide to do comedy i'm right there i'm sitting there i'm going this is the greatest thing ever i am in heaven yeah i am watching people just do what they love make right. people laugh and i knew right then and there i said this is what i'm gonna do i'm gonna be a comedian i'm gonna make people laugh so how'd you do it like how what were your steps well you know i just kept watching all i used to sit in a parking lot and wait for johnny carson to pull up and yeah. johnny would pull up at uh, two o'clock like clockwork yeah and he would get out of his uh white corvette or his mercedes yeah. at two o'clock right with his brown paper bag sack and i'd say hello <laughs> mr carson and he would he had a little pep to his step and he yeah. goes hello young man how you doing byron i said i'm doing great sir yeah. he says good to see you he knew me by first yeah. name there you go i said great show last night oh yeah. you? great show right? yeah he would go he would do a show straight up at 5.30. Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Right. At 6.30, show was over. Yeah. And he was back in his car at <laughs> by 7 o'clock. Right. Like clockwork. He pulled onto that lot at 2. He was back into that, in that car by 7. Yeah. And I watched all of these comedians, and I just watched how they how they interacted with everybody, how they wrote and they rewrote. When they, did, when they would appear on the show and stuff? Oh, what? yeah, when they would appear on the show or they would rehearse. I watched a lot of rehearsing. Uh, oh, when they were doing the, like, the reading from the cards and exactly. stuff. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like Johnny Carson. I learned so much. Like, Johnny, he didn't like having people flip the cards for him. Yeah. So he invented something I'd never seen before. He took all of his material. So let's say he did 20 jokes that night. Yeah. 
he would put it on a, a board that went the length of the studio. <laughs> and so he would have the jokes yeah. going all the way across the studio. Really? Yeah, all the way across the studio. So what would happen is if you pay attention, right, if you notice when he walks out mm-hmm. and he hits his mark, he starts to, sl- he, he favors more to, to the, the left, left. Yeah. because you read from left to right, right? Yeah. So he's reading the jokes on the left, and yeah. towards the end of the monologue, he starts going to the right. He starts going to the right. <laughs> and he, it also, Mark, it gave yeah. him the ability to edit. So he would do joke one, two, three. If joke three didn't work the way he felt it should have worked, he, he would skip joke yeah, yeah. four, right. go to joke five, and, then, and get a stronger, and yeah. then come back to four if he wanted to. Right, right. It was really clever. Yeah. And I, and I watched him do that. It was really So something. as an audience member, you could see this big strip of board? Oh, or how? Yes, oh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and if you were at the studio, you yeah. could see it, right? Right. And it was things like that. And he would never interact. He would never interact with the talent. Right, because he wanted everything to be fresh and well, new. Oh, you mean before the show? Before the show, sure. Right, so he would. He wanted everything to be very yeah. spontaneous, like because he never wanted anybody to say, "Hey, Mark," like I said to you in the parking lot. Right, no, no, no he I, wanted that. Believe to, me, I know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, like I told you that story over. Yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. He wanted to be right there in the moment. Yeah. So I mean, I would watch these guys negotiate with the studios. The studios were more involved then, right? I mean, the network. How would you watch them negotiate? They would be in the hallway, and you would watch them right there, and they would fight over which jokes could stay in, and they would put in three or four jokes and they knew like two of them were so dirty they would never get on so they can get the other two everybody must have been like what's this little kid hanging around for i was wallpaper i would just <laughs> leave on, I, I would sounds just like you're everywhere i'm just i would blend in and i would just kind of like quietly just listen nope don't make eye contact just being in yeah. the room and around them i mean i watched red fox get so upset about he, what well he didn't have a window in his dressing room and he said i'm I, screw you i'm not coming back here until you give me a window in my dressing room. It was a big day because I have the number one show on NBC and you've got me in this box and I don't have a window in my dressing room. So they had to blow out a wall <laughs> and give Red Fox, oh my God. I mean, I, the story. And then he, I would see him and go, hey, how you doing? Good. You want some cabbage? I got some cabbage. And he pulled out a wad of cash. Yeah. It would probably be about 20000 in cash. Yeah, I got some cabbage. You want some cabbage? <laughs> And, and you know, I was I would watch him, and I, I loved him. Yeah. I admired him. I mean, I was too young to even know his jokes. I didn't sure. even, you know, I'm like a little kid, and and you know, well, you the, could get Sanford and Son. Oh yeah, well, yeah. no, we, well, not okay. the dirty. So, you're talking about the dirty joke. Oh yeah, the dirty. Yeah, because yeah. Red Fox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At that point, yeah, yeah. yeah, he was. They found him normally. They found him and doing party records yeah. and doing the circuit, yeah, and he sure. was as dirty as they come. Yeah. And these little ladies would come to the taping of the show. Right. And they were like, we love you, Sanford. Like, we love you, yeah. Fred Sanford. Did he ever engage with the audience? Oh, yeah. And he would go, I'll never forget. I'll never forget. I don't even know. I must have been, I don't even know at this point. Like, I must have been, what, 12 years old, 13 years old. Yeah. Red Fox comes out in the audience. These little old ladies are going crazy. Oh, my God. Yeah. And he comes out. And they were like, tell us a joke. Tell yeah. us a joke. Right. And then you could see the panic in the producer's face like (laughs) don't don't tell them a joke (laughs) and he's like no 
out. They were like, tell us a yeah, joke, yeah, yeah. Red. Right. And he goes, oh, okay. He goes, I'll tell you a joke. <laughs> and I was like, oh, boy. And then you could just see the network executives going, oh, my God, stop. They can't stop it. It's yeah, like, it's, it's a bad car accident, yeah. right? And he goes, oh, I was making out with my girlfriend in the back of the car. I was making out with her. And we was getting all hot and steamy. And it was really hot and steamy. He said, oh, Red, Red, kiss me where it stinks. Kiss me where it stinks. So I took her out to El Segundo. <laughs> you should have seen the looks on these little old ladies. They went, oh, my God. And I just remember looking around, and the executives were like, oh, my God. They were just shaking their heads. Did they laugh, though? Oh, yeah, they laughed. They yeah. Got, yeah, they got it. Yeah. But, you know, so I was just, I got to watch this, and it was just amazing, the negotiation. So, oh, Red, Richard Pryor did a special, right? Yeah. It was, I'll never forget this. He's standing there. He goes, you know, I'm Richard Pryor. They want, the network wanted me to do this special. And I told them, I am not. And they, they start. No, it was the opening monologue, right? It was right? the opening monologue. Yeah, yeah. And, they, and he's standing there. He doesn't have a shirt on, right? right? <laughs> yeah, doesn't yeah. have a shirt on. That's and he, right, yeah, He's yeah. standing and he goes, I told these executives, you're not going to tell me how to do my thing. I'm Richard Pryor. And the, and the camera's slowly pulling back. He's like, I'm not giving up a thing. Yeah. I'm going to do it my way. I don't yeah. have to give up anything because I'm Richard Pryor. And they pull back and he's completely you're castrated. Naked. yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Like, like whoa! Yeah. Like, this is primetime right. network TV. <laughs> right. The brain damage they had to go through, and Richard insisted on getting it's that. like down. a weird bodysuit. Yeah, he had yeah. a bodysuit, and nothing's there. And yeah, they yeah. pull all the way back. He's There's nothing there. Yeah, it's funny. And, uh, you know, you just watched all that. I mean, I, I could not have had a better childhood. Well, when, when does it start, though? When do you get on stage? Like, You know, a great question. I remember, <laughs> I remember saying, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a comedian. Yeah. So I wrote a How script. How old are you? I'm probably 13 years yeah. old at this point. So I write a script, and I write a script for Red Fox, Sanford and Son. You wrote the whole TV script? The whole TV script. And I write the script, and Red Fox is uh, thinks that Aunt Esther is dying, so he's super nice to mm -hmm. her. And the script got rejected. Right. But I ended up getting a friend and a mentor, God bless his soul, David Panish. He read the script, and he just went... He was a, he was a, he was a writer on the show on Sanford and Son and Chico on the Man. Oh, Chico, Chico on the Man. Yeah. yeah. And he goes, "Who wrote this?" And also, he had been a writer for George Slaughter on Laughing. Right. And he goes, "Who wrote this?" And I said, "I did, sir." Yeah. He goes, "No, no. Who wrote this script?" <laughs> and I said, "I wrote this script. I love Sanford and Son. I love Red Fox." And yeah. Boom. He goes, "Okay, I got to tell you something. I can't believe you wrote this. I can't believe you're 13 years old and you wrote this script." He yeah. goes, "Whatever you do, you keep writing." You can do it. Yeah. That was amazing to hear from somebody. Sure. So I took the material, the jokes in that script, and that was my first monologue. How long? Like five minutes? It was five minutes. Yeah. And, uh, and basically, I went on stage sounding like Red Fox. Hey, I did it. And you're 14? I'm 14 years old. So it really worked, right? It sounded like an 80-year-old man. Where are you performing that? So I go, oh, I know what happened. Yeah. You're bringing back old memories, buddy. Uh, Gladys Knight and the Pips yeah. had a summer show. Yeah. At M they had a summer show. So I go, and I'm watching. watching At her, NBC? At NBC. Yeah. They're taping their show. And I, she had a comedian on. And the comedian was hilarious. And I go, and I knock on the door of the comedian. I said, sir, I'd like to be a comedian like you. And what should I do? He said, you should uh, go to the comedy store. And I, and I said to him, I said, listen, I'm gonna, I really thought you were funny. I'm going to check out that, uh, that, that sitcom you were yeah. talking about that's going to start in September. Yeah. What's it called again? He goes, Welcome Back, Cotter. <laughs> and it was Gabe, Gabe Kaplan. Yeah, yeah. So Gabe Kaplan went on the Gladys Knight and the Pips summer sure, show and right. did the whole you know, you know, sweat hog thing. Yeah. And I, he said, go to the comedy store. 
So I called the comedy store. And I said, hey, comedy store. I thought it was a supermarket, Mark. I right. didn't know. Right. Right? I called the comedy store. I yeah. said, so uh, what do you sell sight gags for? And, right. <laughs> and routines where they go, yeah. they go, no, 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 no. It's not a supermarket where you buy comedy. Right. It's it's called the comedy store. It's a nightclub, you knucklehead. Yeah. So I go, oh, well, how do I get on stage? I go, we have tryout night on Monday night. Potluck. All right, potluck. He goes, they said, get here early because we get a line. I said, no problem. <laughs> Line so, of weirdos. Right? A lot of, yeah. So this is summer of 74 or 75. I go at nine in the morning. I take the bus. and I'm th- From where? Thir- I'm 13, 14 years From, old. Where'd you, like, where were you uh, living? Olympic and La Brea, over oh, by yeah. Olympic and La Brea. Yeah. So I take the bus. And I'm sitting on the curb from 9 a.m. Yeah. until about 7 o'clock at night. And they open the door. And I'm like, number one, first one in line. Yeah. And I go, and there's this lady sitting there at the <laughs> at the desk, yeah. and she goes, "What's your name?" And yeah. It was Mitzi Shore. Yeah, where was she in the booth? No, no, she, she was just at, at a desk at the. This is 1974, 75. So there's she, no original room yet. There's no it, main it, room it, yet. There's no main room. Right, it's just the original. Yeah. Room. So I'm sitting there. With Jamie Masada, who goes on to open the Laugh Factory. Yeah. Remember that? The, the original Laugh Factory was like a hallway. It was like, it was a like hall- the size of a hallway. That's, a, that's it. Next to the Chinese restaurant. That's right. Greenblatt. Yeah. yeah. Right? So well, I was at Formosa was there before, right? Wasn't it right there, that old Chinese restaurant? Right? That's right. That's yeah, exactly yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I go, and, and uh, she goes, how old are you? And I said, I'm uh, 14. Yeah. And she goes, well, you can't drink. Uh, you're gonna, you're gonna, I'm gonna lose my license. Yeah. So she goes, because she paid with drinks. Right. She goes, the you get two drinks with this. This is what this is how she paid you. Yeah. And she goes, you can only get soda pop. Yeah. And I said, no problem. She goes, and you have to stay outside. So I said, no problem. So I, st- I, I go get my two little soda pop, and I would stay in the back, right? In the back of, of the back comedy patio. Store, back patio yeah. of the comedy store. Yeah. And I would just lean on people's cars until, you know, until somebody came out. So the got first me. time she saw you, she said you could, what, do spots or what? I went on stage, and I was the first or second comic up, and basically I entertained four people and 300 chairs. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, right. so, so the crowd hadn't really gotten there Yeah, the yet. crowd had not but gotten But she watched you? Yes, yeah, she watched me. And she said, that was cute. Come back. Yeah. And I kept coming back every Monday. Every... But one of those nights, it was either first or second night, this guy comes up to yeah. me. Yeah. Wayne Klein. This guy, I'll never forget Wayne. I love Wayne. Was Wayne, he a comic? Yeah, comic uh-huh. and a writer. Wayne Klein comes up to me. He says, who wrote those jokes? Yeah. I said, I wrote those jokes. I'm like, why do people keep asking me who wrote these yeah, jokes? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because you're a kid. <laughs> right? He goes, who wrote those jokes? He goes, I said, I wrote them. He yeah. goes, I know a guy who might be interested in writing with you, and maybe we can give you a call. I said, sure, give me a call. So next thing you know, a week or two later, my phone rings, right? And I answer the phone, and uh, the guy- and you're at your mother's house? At my mother's house, yeah. right? And he says, the guy goes, may I speak to Byron? <laughs> I go, this is Byron. He goes- this is Jimmy J.J. Walker. <laughs> yeah. Now, Jimmy Walker is on Good Times. Yeah. And number one sitcom, you know, hot, he's hotter than the sun. Yeah. And he goes, my man, Wayne Klein, says you're funny. <laughs> yeah. And if my man, Wayne Klein, says you're funny, then you're funny. Yeah. He goes, so I was just wanting to see if you wanted to come write some jokes with me and my crew. Right. And I said, let me ask my mom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then I heard Jimmy go. 
he asked to ask his mom. And then this guy in the background said, tell his mom not to worry. We'll have cookies and milk for him. There you right? Go. Yeah. So my mom says yes. And I can't even believe this. She takes me to Jimmy's place. I walk into his apartment. To write jokes. Was that with. that famous apartment where? Uh, yeah, this is the apartment. Where, so, where, so, but what's that guy? Who else with there? Another? Were there other comics? Oh, so I there? walk in. You'll yeah. never. You'll, I walk in and yeah. sitting in his living room. This is seventy five. So yeah, seventy five, seventy six at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, Jay Leno. Yeah. Who was sleeping in his car right. off the four hundred five freeway? Yeah. And David Letterman, yeah, who had just driven out from Indianapolis in an orange or red pickup truck. Right. He didn't think he was going to make it. Right. So he wanted to be able to right. get back yeah, in yeah. his car and right. drive home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Marty Nadler, who mm. went on to write and produce Laverne and Shirley in Happy Days. Mm. Jeff Stein, Wayne Dugan. Uh, these guys went on to do Mr. Belvedere. Yeah. Like these, and so Jimmy has us all in his apartment. Was and, this when he was running the management agency too? And he had a management. He managed me. He managed David Letterman. What was he called managed, Ebony Entertainment? No, it, I forget it? what it was called. He managed Jay Leno. Yeah. He managed me. He managed uh, uh, Letterman. Letterman. And he told us all, stop being a comedian. Right. You well, don't want to be on TV. You want to be managed. And so they, Jay and Dave. What's the name of that company? I could I never remember. Right. I used yeah. to, so I, I, Jay and Dave were yeah. getting $200 a week. That's, yeah. And I got $25 a joke. So if I came up with a joke, Mark, boom, I got 25 bucks. Now, this is huge for me because I had a paper route at this point. So this is like J.J. Walker. Yeah, this is Jimmy J.J. Walker. And so I had a paper route. I had to throw two newspapers, uh, the Los Angeles Herald Examiner. I had to throw two newspapers to make a penny, right? And when he wrote that check, for, he gave me that check for 25 bucks, I didn't know what to do. Yeah. I, I, th- I said to my mother, I go, what is this? She said, that's a check. And I go, and what happens now? Yeah. She goes, you cash it. And I go, then what happens? She goes, you put the money in your bank or whatever you do. Yeah. I went, wow. So I said, you know what? I don't want to cash it. She goes, why not? I go, because the signature's on it and I can't believe somebody gave me a $25 check for something I would do for free for the rest of my life. Uh-huh. And she said, well, cash the check and ask him if he'll give it to you. So I cashed the check and I went to him and I said, you know, the check I cashed, did you yeah. can I get it back? He goes, yeah. And to this day, I have it framed. You do. And hanging in my office. <laughs> Your 20, first check? My first, 25 bucks. That was the moment I knew. Do you still talk to Jimmy? All the time. I love him. And and I and, and, and I and to this day, that was the moment I like, I could make it in this business. And we used to sit in his apartment. How is he? It was a oh, Jimmy's great. He's right. amazing. He just he's just one of those like he is committed to the art of comedy and he's fantastic. Do you still write jokes for him? No, <laughs> no. I, I, he he fired me. He, he, he fired your jokes. And I'm like because I, I he'll I, take I never, him, buddy. He'll he'll let you write for him still. Yeah, yeah. But I never uh, stopped doing stand up. He goes, you're keeping the good stuff for yourself. You're uh, fired. Uh, so we used to sit in his apartment. I, I mean, it's one of those things. It's so funny. You're sitting there and it's David Letterman and Jay Leno and Marty Nadler and what Wayne. Were you, Klein. What were those guys? What were your memories of those guys at that time i mean were jay they, never wrote anything he, he wouldn't like write it up on paper yeah. he would come and enhance our jokes yeah like he would go and embellish our joke and jay was amazing he immediately knew how to fix a joke like yeah. bam right, right there in the moment uh i still have the notebooks somewhere of all the material people would bring in and letterman he was so diligent he would come in with a couple of pages and really thought it through wayne klein marty Nally, these guys were real like they wrote it and then we would sit around a coffee table listen to the material and make it better and how do you make it and better? jimmy be sitting there too oh absolutely and he would try it oh yeah so we would sit there and we'd say jimmy how about this make the joke and that's where i learned and you're 14 i'm the 14 i'm 14 and so this, they must be busting your balls a little oh yeah they're but they're but they were great they yeah. were like big brothers right 
And this is where I learned that 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 the art of writing comedy, right? That right. craft. That, sure. And I just, you go, and Jay was like, okay, move this word over here, cut this word, delete this, get to the joke faster, but yeah. we'll exaggerate a little bit more here. So right. everybody, it was, I learned so much sitting in that room. And you were still doing, you were doing spots too? Oh yeah, I was doing spots. I would go do my stand up and then walk down this, walk down two blocks to go to the comedy store and do my act. Yeah. And then I would wait for Jimmy to come later, do his act and I would take notes. Yeah, and she so, let you what, stand in the room yeah, by that point? Yeah, I would just stand in the back. I would make sure if I saw her coming, I ran out the front. Yeah. I couldn't wait until the day I turned 21. Oh, she, I think she started serving food or something. I think I was able, I was okay when I was 18. Now, yeah. wait, so you're doing like just regular weeknight spots and weekend spots yeah and you're like 15 or 16 yeah i'm there every night i'm just going and doing stand up and i'm doing the comedy store and i'm doing the improv who do you remember from that time in the 70s that was really killing oh my goodness man it was it was magical yeah it was just magical i remember like all these comedians would just come through and it was unbelievable i mean you know one of the greatest experiences i had yeah watching richard Pryor show up and th- this was unbelievable to witness this whole process. In the 70s? Yeah. Yeah. So Richard comes in. Right. And he was a rock star. Yeah. Mega star. Yeah. Like, I mean, right. full grown men would, would start crying when they saw him. Yeah. Oh my God. They were like, Richard, yeah. Richard. Like, they were crying. Yeah. Okay. Like they, the, the sunset would get blocked. Like traffic would stop. Yeah. People jumped out of their cars and just, it was like the Beatles. It was Elf. It was insane. Right. right. Yeah. He would get on the stage. The, in the original room? Yeah. The original room. Yeah. Because everybody knew his, uh, his, his uh, records. Yeah. And he would get on the stage and it would probably be a 15-minute standing ovation. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a surprise guest. Please welcome R- Richard Pryor. He's so huge. Huh? Right? And at this point, people think they're going to just see a bunch of unknown comedians. Yeah. And Richard Pryor hits the stage, and people lose their minds, and they start screaming out his routines like it was a hit record. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. they knew all Would the Would he lyrics. do them, though, or we right. do new so, shit? And that, that was it. That oh. was the point. And he, they would go, they would go crazy. Mudbone. Oh, Mudbone. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, they, they, he said, no, I'm not going to do any of that. And he would start talking and he would bomb. Yeah. Like, oh my God. Yeah. They were like, what? I just watched Richard Pryor bomb. Yeah. And he would go on night after night and he would bomb. Yeah. Night after night and he would bomb. And I was like, I, I said, hey. You know, he was cool with me. Yeah, I said, "Hey, Richard, you know, how's it going out yeah. there? What, what, are you, what are you thinking? Like they're right. going crazy every night. Standing ovation as he walked on. Right, not so when he left. <laughs> yeah, and I'll never forget. He looked at me and he said, "You're only as good as you dare to be bad. You mm. have to go through this process. <laughs> yeah. You have to just let go of the old, and you have to just be honest and open up, and." It will happen. Don't worry about it. No Just kidding. share yourself. And I watched him, and literally, probably four months later, mm. you start to just see the genius. Like he just kept talking and kept talking. Oh, you and, see him honing the bits, the and things, honing, and honing, stuff honing, that and, stuck. And it, was, and it was more like therapy. Yeah. Like he just 
talked about things no one ever talked about. But you'd see if, uh, at the beginning where it didn't have any form. Nothing. And you didn't know how it would be funny. And then he stuck with the themes and they start to build. They Mark, he would go on stage. Refine themselves. Re- yeah. He wasn't even close to be cl- close to fine. You, you, he would go on stage and you could hear a mouse piss on cotton. Really? They wouldn't indulge him at all. It was just dead. And it was just and he just kept talking. And it was like, wow, it was like a therapy session. That became what most comedians considered to be Richard Pryor live in concert. The right. One, the one that he shot out in Long Beach. The first one. The very first yeah. one. That's what that became. No. That is what yeah. that became because he did 76, that. 76, something yeah, like that. There it is. Yeah. And then he went and started doing, after the comedy store, yeah. and just working through it. Then he went and did a tour, and then they went and shot a couple of nights out in Long Beach. And comedy never was the same after he laid down that 90 minutes in Long Beach. Oh, it, I saw it when I was in high school. It changed my life. Changed, I mean, it changed the trajectory of comedy. Sure. Because up until that point, we as comedians, we were a freak show. We were a little like, we were like- <laughs> I, we, I, I don't know how, it's it, not, there's still a freak show. Yeah, exactly. So we were, <laughs> we, we were half a click from being in the circus. And, and so, because we always saw us like as a five minute act on Ed Sullivan and this- Oh, and I that. see. I see what you're saying. Yeah, so, so you're saying that like there was still some of that- you know, kind of like broad, sticky <laughs> stuff going on. No, no one, when you think about right, it, right. most Americans had yeah. never seen a comedian do it in long form. Right. Most right. Americans had only seen us do stand up for four sure. minutes on mm-hmm. Ed Sullivan or The Tonight Show. Yeah. So when they filmed, sure. When, uh, right. when, they, when they filmed yeah. his 90 minute concert, yeah. It blew people's yeah. minds. Billy like, Braver thought he had to turn in his lunchbox. <laughs> <laughs> I love Billy. I love him. You, you're going way back. The comedians, I mean, it was just Lenny Schultz, and just the yeah. comedians yeah. that came through there and how smart they were and how funny they were. And it, it was like, it, it's, a re, it, it's a movie. It's a TV show. You think about the personalities. Yeah, they had that. They had. They tried it. I'm dying up here. They tried the show, yeah. yeah. And, well, you know, and I love Jim Carrey. And Jim, I'll never forget. Were you there? You were the, you came you were there after Lebitkin killed himself. No, right? I was there. I was there. The, I was there the night he killed himself. You were? Yeah, I was there. I was there because I what was year there. was that? I thought that was uh, seventy. I guess it was after seventy three. What, what was exactly? It, it was. Uh, it was seventy. I think it was seventy nine. Really? Yeah, that I was the it, strike. Yeah, that was the seventy eight. Seventy nine was the strike. You were there that day, huh? Oh, I was there. He when he killed himself, and he it was, he was distraught over the strike. And he went to what was the Hyatt Hotel right. next door, and yeah. he jumped off towards the comedy store, yeah. and he killed himself. And to this day, there are comedians who don't talk to each other over that. It was, it was devastating. I mean, y- 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 the things I saw. And you were you were still a kid though, right? But yeah, you, at that you knew point what was I was seventeen, on. eighteen years old. So you knew what was going on. I knew, of course, I knew. What did, was you going stri- on. did you strike? Did you? Did you cross the line? No, I was one of the comedians that struck, and yeah. I, I was doing the improv. Right. Right? So I did the improv. And uh, I was- Because Jimmy took you over there. Yeah. <laughs> right? No, no. Bud Freeman became like a second father to me. I love right. Bud. Bud came out. He took care. First time I ever got paid to perform Yeah, was for tw- Bud Freeman. He goes, he comes up to me one night. But didn't Mitzi get pissed off? It was really interesting. Mitzi and Bud didn't mind sharing me. Most other comics, that was a no-no. Right. I got lucky. Right. And uh, Bud came up to me one night and he said, uh, what are you doing New Year's Eve? I go, I'm like 16 years old. I'm like 15, 16 years old. I said, I'm not doing anything New Year's Eve. He goes, you want to perform New Year's Eve? I go, sure. So I performed New Year's Eve. Think nothing of it. I had a a blast. It was nice to be out New Year's Eve. 
comes up to me a month later, two months later, he hands me a check for $25. I go, what is this for? Everyone's paying you $25. That was my going rate, 24 <laughs> joke or stand-up, $25. And he says, uh, you perform New Year's Eve, and I pay yeah. uh, comedians to perform. on The one night I pay at this point was yeah. New Year's Eve. I said, wow, this is great. I have that check framed and hanging on So my- when Lubitkin jumps off the building, you were at the store? Yeah, I mean, yeah, we the got- ambulance came and everything, and it was yeah, like yeah, we came chaos. And it, we came, and it was crazy, and they go, he killed himself. You're like, what? Are you kidding me? Uh, it, it was really a tough, tough time. I mean, it was brutal. But he was like, he had difficulty anyways, right? He was, That's what they say. I mean, right. I didn't know him that yeah. well, but I mean, when that happened- He was, was Richard's friend. You knew Richard you know, Lewis? Yeah, oh my God. They were best friends, right? I tell you, Richard Lewis, you know what? I still wear the cologne I wear the day because of Richard Lewis. <laughs> Yeah. Right, it's, it's <laughs> the straight. The funny things you bring up, Mark. Oh, yeah. Richard, we, we were at the improv, yeah. and I, he comes in. I give him a hug, and I say, "Richard, I go, Richard, that's the greatest cologne ever." <laughs> I go, "I want to wear this cologne," <laughs> and he would not. For I, Mark, I think it took over a year for Come him on. to finally tell me yeah. what the cologne was. What was it? I can't tell you. <laughs> no, no. So, and finally, I kept, I, I go, Richard, you, I love this cologne. Will you, right? He goes, he goes, okay, I'm so sick of you asking. He goes, it's Aqua de Selva. I go, Aqua de Selva? He goes, yeah. He goes, you can buy it down at the drugstore at Rexall. So I go to Rexall. I get Aqua de Selva. I am probably, at this point, 18 years old. Yeah. I am 58 years old. I still wear that cologne today. Really? Because of Richard Lewis. It's still the same 40 stuff? years later, my Aqua de Selva. It's the one thing I say to my wife, honey, whatever we do, make yeah. sure I don't run out of Aqua de Selva. <laughs> and they still sell it at the drugstore? <laughs> no, we go online and get it now. <laughs> so, I know. But, I've but never Richard, even heard of it. Right? Never even heard, I had never heard of it. And I kept going, Richard, what's the cologne? Right, he probably doesn't even remember this. I we- This is how strange my life is. Comedians yeah. send yeah. me on this path. So that was it. We get to the comedy store. We're doing, we're doing our stand-up. And uh, I remember one night uh, I called Jim McCauley at the- at the, the Booker uh, of the Tonight Show. The Booker of the Tonight right. Show for Johnny Carson. It's a big deal again on the Tonight Show. This yeah. is like 78. And 1978. Now this side, now my memory gets better around these years. Yeah. So I call McCauley and I say, listen, I'd love for you to take a look at my stand-up. I want to make sure I'm going in the right direction in which Mr. Carson would appreciate right. me. Uh, my type of humor and I just want to make sure I'm going in the right direction. Right. So he comes and he looks at me and he calls me up like, uh, I don't even know, like a month later and he says, I'd like for you to be on the show with Johnny Carson. Wow. I was 17 years old. Yeah. I was 17. Did you, were you wondering if Johnny would remember you from the lot when you were a kid? I was, I figured he would yeah. because, you know, I, he saw me so much. Yeah. And, uh, and I said, I turned it down. Right. And I said, I was 17 years old. It is 1978. Yeah. And my mother said, why'd you ter- turn it down? I said, because I'm not training for a, a sprint. I'm training for a marathon. When yeah. I do the show, I want to do it to make sure we never have to look back. Oh, so you wanted to have a, enough time to... If you get offers, to, you want to be able to accept them. If yeah, you, to do I, the job. To do the job. Right. If you go and you get- Much like, smart. You, know, you can't get booked on five minutes yeah, exactly. at a club. Exactly. And if, you do, and if you're 17, you can't accept the gig because you're 17 and still in high school. Right. So I said, you know, respectfully, please understand, let me get out of high school and let me get into college. And my mom will know that, hey, this comedy thing is great, right? Yeah. So I ended up doing the show. It's like my second birthday, May 17th, 1979. 
What are you, 18? I was 18 years old. I just uh, just finished high school, and I ended up being the youngest. Were you, com- were you, you're the youngest? I'm the youngest you comedian somebody, to do it with Johnny. Somebody better tell Alan Bursky that. Uh, no, I beat Alan by a year. He was 19. He was <laughs> probably, 19. Probably yeah, so got on you about that. Yeah, he's mad at me about it. Still, no, I love it. No, no, no. So I, I, I did the show. Uh, yeah, I ended up being the youngest comic to do it with him. Yeah. And I'll never. And I was so comfortable there because when Johnny would leave the studio, right? at seven o'clock yeah that studio would be empty right. at seven o'clock sure like 30 minutes later and i used to go stand on his spot and read his <laughs> monologue and i would go read the cue cards because they would still so be on the knew bo- the place i knew the. i would go sit at his desk yeah i would go sit on his sofa and pretend that Did i was know like, this yeah i don't know what he know but his crew knew it because yeah. they were still cleaning up right i actually sat at his desk and interviewed one of the crew guys just for fun just for fun i was like tell me a, so we've got bob on he wrote a book cleaning up after the stars i yeah. would just hang out yeah yeah and just interview people and, and it was that was like my bedroom that that studio with johnny yeah so i'm backstage and he's about to introduce me uh connie stevens is just finished singing the song it's going to take a lot of love yeah and it's a commercial break and the guys (laughs) are are joking with me backstage the guys who open the curtains yeah and we're just kind of having fun because i've known them for years right literally i've known these guys for like five years right and all of a sudden they stop laughing and they get real serious and they look up and they go, and it, I turn around, and it's Johnny Carson. Because yeah. I'm behind the curtain. And he goes, he goes, he says, don't worry, son. You're going to be great. This is what he said. Yeah. Now, this is my hero. Yeah. I love this guy. Yeah. Right? When he got up from his desk and said that to me, I could have made chairs laugh. Yeah. Right? And I had some practice doing that, <laughs> right. right? From the early days of the comedy store. Yeah. And I walked out. He gave me an amazing introduction. I walked out. We did it. It went extremely well. Yeah. He had me come over, shake his hand. Yeah. I got multiple offers. My favorite, one of my favorites was an offer from Joan Rivers to do a sitcom. Because I knew when I was standing behind that curtain, I knew I was standing there and I said, what I'm about to do in the next five minutes yeah. will change my life and my mother's life forever. We will never look back. We'll never have to worry about it. And, and it did then. And it did. Back then. Boom. It did. Yeah. So we hit that hit that mark May 17th, 1979. What were the other offers? Oh, my goodness. Joan this, Rivers wanted you to do a sitcom? She wanted me to. She was But, did, no, but stand-up work, did you end up in, you know, like opening for bands and shit? Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my. Mark, are you kidding me? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. So one of the offers <laughs> I got was a, 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 a show. A lot, I were a number of shows. And I said, what's this one? And they said, well, this one is a reality show. I said, tell me about it. And they said, oh, they, t- they described it. Yeah. And I'm very mathematical. I love numbers, right? And I yeah. said to myself, I said, this is the show I want. And uh, they said, why this one? I said, because there are, we at that point, three networks. Yeah. And each network had 22 hours of primetime television. Yeah. I said, there's 66 hours of primetime television. Yeah. And this is the only hour different from all the other 66 right. hours. Right. 65 hours. Right. And the show was Real People. Yeah, I remember it. And I said, this show will probably go to top 10, and it will be on long enough to get it, me through USC. It was, oh, really? That, yeah, was, the that, that, was, oh, that was the goal. How am I going to pay for USC film school? So, And sure enough, it became the granddaddy of reality Yeah, shows. I remember the show. I remember, like, what year was that, man? 79 to 84. 
That, seven, that was a long run. Yeah. So I I did the show. I did the Tonight Show May 17th. And the next week, I was off doing my first Real People story in Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. I was at, I, they, I did a story on the biggest, meanest roller coaster ever, uh, The Beast at Kings Island. Yeah. And so that was my first story. <laughs> and I did that show for five years. And I traveled all over America. Yeah. And I, I was able it. to really see America, those little tiny towns, Coast Shockton, Ohio, Waterloo. Yeah, and they, all those guys that came from there, like were the other guys, like Skip was a comic. Skip and, and Fred Willard came from the yeah, Fred was, Willard. From Bill the Bay Rafferty. Area. Bill okay, was Willard in the which which comedy? Willard was more improv. With a group. It yeah. wasn't the committee, it was another one. I right. can't remember. And Rafferty was well, a stand comic. up. Stand up. Yep. And uh, Skip Stevenson stand up. Right, right. And then it was just great. And Sarah Purcell was just a wonderful crew. Now were you doing Doing stand up as well? Like, yes. were you doing like opening for bands? And oh, stuff? my goodness. So, like, who'd you open for? Oh. <laughs> uh, so, I had the greatest personal appearance agent ever. Okay. Who was that? Ben Bernstein. Yeah. Ben Bernstein. Love you, Ben. So, Ben. Still around? Yeah, he's still around. Not my agent anymore. He's yeah. not, he retired. Yeah. But I love him. So, Ben, Ben represented every music act on the planet. Yeah. So, this is who I, I go on tour opening for everybody. Sure. Lionel Richie, yeah. Kenny Rogers, yeah. Dolly Parton, the Pointer Sisters, <laughs> Al Jarreau, yeah. Smokey Robinson, <laughs> Lou Rawls, uh, Julie Andrews. And that was the gig, though, right? There was no comedy clubs yet. There so were that no, was the gig. That was the gig. So I would go and t- on tour and just open for everybody from A to Z. I'll never forget, Ben Bernstein calls me up one day. Yeah. He says, Byron, I know. He goes, listen, Byron. He goes, well, you and I have this arrangement that I need to run everything by you. Yeah. And I go, yeah, what do you have, man? He goes, well, he goes, I don't really want to waste your time, but, you know, I just want to run it by you because that's our relationship. Sure. I, go, I said, sure. I go, he goes, well, there's this young lady, yeah. and it's her second time on stage, yeah. and she's going to be at the Roxy. and uh, Down the street. Down the street, and we're going to have, you know, like uh, just industry people. They want to showcase her for the industry. And it's like, you know, 200 people, and, you know, she's a little nervous. It's her second time on stage. Would you know they want somebody like you to warm up the crowd, mm. and uh, you know, but it, you know, it only she's a new client, and uh, but it only pays fifty dollars. I go, Ben, <laughs> I pass, but listen, yeah, thanks for checking in with me yeah. on that. And I go, but by the way, what's this girl's name? Yeah. He goes, uh, Whitney, Whitney Houston. <laughs> yeah, I go, Whitney Houston. <laughs> I swear to you, I had just gone to Tower Records, yeah, on Sunset when we had record stores. Yeah. And I'm walking down the aisle, and I see her on the cover of this album. And yeah. I said, oh, my God, this girl is beautiful. Right. I don't even care if she can sing. Yeah. I'm buying this album. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't even know if she can sing. She's beautiful. I'm buying the album. Right. That's I why buy, they have covers. That's why they have covers. <laughs> I, I buy the album, and like every song, I'm like, oh, my God, this girl can sing. So mm-hmm. I said, Ben. No, no, no. I said, Ben, no problem. No problem. I said, Ben, I'm cool. $50. We're good. Yeah. We're good. And he did it. I, I said, just give me two tickets. I'm going to take my mom. This yeah. is it. We go, I do my 20 minutes, she comes on stage, didn't need me. This, she got like, I don't know, six or seven standing ovations. No kidding. I mean, every song, she's just blowing the roof off. It was insane. Wow. It was insane. That was like her Hollywood debut that in was, a Exactly. Way? It was her second time. And, you know, they did a, they did a, in, turn, in, in front of the industry, they did, yeah. a, they did, I forget the name of the club in New York. It was the equivalent of the Roxy in New York and they did it there, like the yeah. Apple or something right. like that. And they did it in New York and then they came to LA and Clive Davis wanted to showcase her. 
So Ben calls me up. Ben Bernstein calls me up. He says, Byron, he goes, Whitney loves you. And uh, she's going to go out and do a tour. Mm. And the first date is at Carnegie Hall. And uh, she wants you to come open for her. <laughs> I go, 50 bucks. He goes, no, I got you more. <laughs> I tell Whitney I love her too. <laughs> but we went out on tour with every, the Portnier sisters. They so that was that Carnegie date? Oh, it was, oh, it was great. <laughs> the Carnegie Hall date? Yeah. Okay, so I'll tell you the story. Carnegie Hall. <laughs> So <laughs> Carnegie Hall, I'll tell you this. So Carnegie Hall, I go out of Open Forge, and she was amazing. It yeah. was great. Now, there's a rule. There's a rule that uh, you never open the side door, you know, the door to the street. You never open oh. that, that backstage door in, to the street. Yeah, at Carnegie in particular? Or any, any uh, venue. Oh, is that true? Yeah. It, what do you mean yeah. never open? You just don't open the door. Like, if anybody's supposed to be back there, you have the credentials to get back there. Yeah. Right? So anybody knocking on that door, oh, I see. Yeah. they don't have a pass. Right. They don't have the credentials. Right. Don't, right? don't let the people from the street well, in. Well, don't open the door. It's like, it, it's like a horror movie. Sure. Don't go in the attic. Yeah, right. Don't open the door, right? Right. So I get off stage. And, I, I, and, and and all of a sudden, I hear this banging on the side door. And I was like, bang, 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 bang. At Carnegie Hall. At Carnegie Hall. Yeah. And I'm like, and I just said, you know, I know the rule. Don't open the door. Right. You don't open the door to the street. Whoever that knucklehead is, yeah. that knucklehead is not supposed to be here because they don't have a pass. Right. Right. Yeah. Bang, 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 bang. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm not going to open that door. And then, but the way they kept knocking, I'm like, who is knocking on this door like this? Yeah. So I said. Okay, I'm gonna open the door. I'm gonna break the rule. Oh, All right. yeah. I open the door and standing there with a dozen red roses, Robert De Niro. <laughs> Come on, <laughs> Mark. I cannot make this up. And I'm looking and I'm going, is this Robert De Niro with a dozen red roses? And he looks at me with that look in his eye and he goes, "Where's Whitney?" Yeah. <laughs> that was it. I was it. And I said, You know well, what he had on his mind? I don't have like, I said, I said, uh, I said, you see those two really big brothers at the end of the hall, like, they, yeah. like the side, like 280 pounds each, all muscle, the two of them. I go, She's behind that door. Yeah. Now, if you get past those two brothers, yeah. inside are three more, and one of them's actually her real brother. Right. <laughs> but he's Robert De Niro. He's right. He could, and I thought, I thought maybe that would scare him away. No. No. I, he just said, thank you, and walked straight to her dressing room. Uh, oh, my God. Yeah, that's great. That, that was Carnegie Hall. That was great. Yeah. So, you know, so it's just amazing. You, you go on tour. I, I remember I would go on, I went on tour. It, look, the Pointer Sisters kept me alive for over a decade. I went on tour with Smokey. After, after Real oh, just, People? Yeah, after, or Real during? Pe uh, after Real People. From 84 on, I was on the road for a good 12 years. And I remember being on people the road. People knew who you were, though. Yeah, they knew who I was. They knew me. They knew me. And yeah. so I was, I said, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm doing these dates and I'm with Smokey Robinson. And Smokey, I think our tour bus was a Greyhound bus. Mm. Like he had just chartered a Greyhound bus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we are on a yeah. Greyhound bus. But Smokey and I, Smokey, we we get off stage. You know this. You get off stage at like ten o'clock, eleven o'clock at night. Mm. You're so hyped up. Oh yeah, right. You yeah. have all this energy. Yeah. So Smokey and I would play chess ah. until seven in the morning. Well, that's relatively safe, right? Until yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Until and then the moment Bryant Gumpel came on the Today Show on the Today <laughs> Show, <laughs> we knew okay, well, this game's over. <laughs> gotta go. We gotta go get some sleep. <laughs> Let's go do this gig again. So you would do the gig, get on the bus, yeah. eat at truck stops. Yeah. Nice guy, Smokey. Oh, it's amazing. You yeah. kidding me? One of yeah. the best human beings ever. I love love him. Yeah. And uh, so I would just I, Sammy Davis Jr. had me open for him in summer of eighty one. Mm. 
I was 20 years old at Caesar's Palace. Ben Bernstein says, yeah. I got you uh, working with Sammy Davis. Yeah. I go, all right, Ben, you do, I love it, baby. Let's do it, right? Yeah. So I go to Lake Tahoe. Yeah. And I get to a rehearsal. They say, yes, uh, Mr. Davis is going to do a half an hour, and then he's going to bring you out. You're going to do 20. Right. I go, no, 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 no. I'm the opening act. No, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do a half hour. Yeah, and then Sammy Davis Jr. is gonna do whatever he does. <laughs> yeah, but see, you know, I'm the opening act, so I'm gonna do my act, right. and then he's gonna come back. No, they said no. Mr. Davis wants to change it up, and he wants to do thirty minutes, and then he wants you to do twenty, and then he's gonna come back out and do a, like an hour. I go, you want me to follow Sammy Davis Jr.? Yeah. They go, yes, that's what, that's what, <laughs> I, go, I go, I didn't sign up for this. Ben, what's going on? Ben, can I get Ben Bernstein on? <laughs> I said, Ben, I'm the opening act. You got Sammy opening for me. This is not going to work, Ben. He goes, I, he goes, Byron, just relax. Just go do, just, I said, okay. So I take a deep breath. He, he does his half hour. I go out and do my 20 minutes. Yeah. And uh, I like wow. Okay, I got through that. He because it was perfect. Because he like just he probably built you up. He built me up, and yeah. he, and he took the edge off because it was like, who is this? We don't. We're, we're Sammy. They got all Rick. It was like a variety show. It was like way. a variety show. Yeah, yeah. So it, and so I go. He says, I'm gonna freshen up my drink, and I want you to spend some time with my funny young, young friend. Blah blah blah. So I come off stage, and Bill Hara had just hired this butler from the Queen of England, who worked for the Queen at Buckingham Palace. From Harris Casino? Yeah, yeah. Harris, yeah. Harris Hotel and yeah. Casino in Lake Tahoe. And the butler's name was Cam. And the guy used to work at Buckingham Palace yeah. serving the Queen of England. Right. And he brought him in to take care of all of his movie, all of his stars performing at his hotel. Yeah. And Bill Hare really took care, took care of people. He'd give them, you know, the home, he'd give them a home on the on the lake with a chef and yeah. he had a car collection with Rolls Royces and wow. you could use the car, yeah. collect, whatever you want. He took care, like, the the entertainers loved Bill Hare because he treated them like megastars. Yeah, right? yeah, and they were. So I come off stage and I get this knock on the door and it's Cam the butler. Yeah, and he says, uh, "Mr. Allen, uh, Sammy Davis Senior would like to speak to you, sir." <laughs> yeah, and then I'm and I'm like, and I'm in my my I'm looking up at my monitor. Sammy Davis Senior. Yeah, I look at my monitor and I see Sammy Davis Junior on stage. And I, well, he's on stage. What, what do you mean? Does he, he goes, no, 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 no. Sammy Davis Sr., sir. Yeah. The father. Wow. The father. Wow. I go, oh, okay. The father. That makes sense. He's I got said, a father. Yeah, he's got a father. And he said, Sammy, and Sammy's on stage. Right. So I said, sure. And then he walks in. This Sammy Davis Sr. walks in. Uh-huh. And he is this tall, dark, handsome, statuesque man. I mean, like, he's, like, really, like, like wow, a yeah. presence, right? Yeah. He's impeccable, yeah. like, impeccable. Right. And he comes in, may I have a seat, young man? Yes, sir. Right. <laughs> yeah. 20 years old. <laughs> yeah. And he has a seat. And he says, young man, I, I just watched your show. I said, oh, okay. You yeah. know, you were comedians. Yeah. You know, right? I mean, you, you want you, oh, you want to yeah, hear it. It's yeah, funny. Yeah. What made you laugh, right? Yeah, yeah. He's like, interesting. Right? <laughs> oh, this is what every comic strives for. Interesting. interesting. The worst. <laughs> the worst, right? Yeah. So he says, um, I noticed when you were on stage there that you had a crease in your pants <laughs> from hanging your pants on the back of the door. <laughs> so he says, Bernard here, Bernard only all he does is press and iron Sammy's clothes. And Bernard, from this point on, will be pressing and ironing your clothes. <laughs> I said, okay, all right, all right. Then he says, and I also noticed when you're on stage, you had a smudge on your shoe. And uh, 
Ray here, all Ray does is all he does is shine Sammy's shoes. So Ray will be shining your shoes. He says, you see, young man, these people pay a lot of money to see us. And when we walk out there, we have to show them that we are impeccable, that we are brilliant. We are the best. No one is better than us. And so, son, you can't go out there with a crease in your pants and a smudge on your shoe. Do we understand each other? I go, yes, sir. Yes, we do. And he walked out the room and I went, oh, my God, this is why Sammy Davis Jr. (laughs) is one of the biggest stars ever. And he came from where? Yeah. And I and I became enamored with Sammy because I realized in his story. Yeah. Oh, my God. Right. His mother had abandoned him. He chased his father, who had just read me the riot act, chased his father at age three down the train track. Don't leave me, daddy. Like my mother left me. Yeah. And he knew the only way he could keep his mother's his father's love was to be an entertainer because his father was an entertainer. The yeah. Bill Maston trio. And he had to take the roof off. And I, I said, oh, this is one of the greatest stories ever. I now know why Sammy Davis Jr. is Sammy Davis Jr. You met him. I met the guy, and I was like, oh my God. So when you talk about being on the road, I lived on the road. One of those, you know, you wake up, you're looking at cottage cheese ceilings, you don't know where you are. I did everything from Disneyland. For like a decade? Uh, I I was on the road for about 20 years. Well, here's, really? 20 20 years. Well, here's the thing, like, it's sort of interesting to me, like, in talking to you and, and getting this backstory, it's like, there was a period there where, you know, I, I knew you from real people. I, I When I was a, a doorman at the comedy store in the 80s, I saw your picture there. I'm like, he was here. He's a comic. I remember he's a comic. But then it just became this thing where, like, I, it, I, I wasn't thinking about Byron Allen. And then, like, late at night, like at 2 in the morning, <laughs> <laughs> I just see, like, Byron Allen talking to a, a celebrity. And I'm like, where's this show come from? <laughs> what is, how is Byron Allen on television? What is he always on television? Uh, and it just seemed to like show up like at late at night yeah. and the camera angles were weird. You guys were <laughs> fucking with the camera. And I'm like, is this his show? And then, and then it turns out like, you know, the arc of your career, because oddly, not oddly, but you know, on paper, I mean, you're really the most successful comic I've had in this place. <laughs> like, I, I, you, you, you were opening for Sammy and now how do you get from there to having a, a $20 billion lawsuit <laughs> against Comcast that's going to go to the Supreme Court? Like there, somewhere in between you on the road and the weird show at three in the morning, you made, you made a lot of fucking money. <laughs> that's a very, that's a great question. <laughs> you know, um, you know, it, it was, uh, I, 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 and you own the weather channel. <laughs> well, the weather channel is a great business. Uh, you know, the, everybody will always need the weather and it's getting more and more extreme. Uh, you know, I, I I got fired off of real people for a minute. Yeah. And there was a contract dispute. And I asked for the money in year three that my co-hosts were getting in year one. I didn't like that feeling of of uh, being fired. And, and at that moment, I had that epiphany, which was, it's not show business. It's business show. You have to juxtapose yeah. those two words. And that's when I said, it's not about you know, the show. Right. You got to learn the business. Right. And you have to learn the business 
innately. Yeah. And when you learn the business innately, you can do all the shows you want. No, all all avenues. Wait, did you get that degree at UCLA? USC. USC. No, I did not finish. Okay. So and you didn't. My so mother did. She, she right. got. She got. So you needed to educate yourself. I had to educate myself. Right. It is. It is business show. So. I went to my very first NATP, the National Association of Television Programming Executives, in January of 81, and I have gone 38 consecutive years. Why'd you go that first time? Because I didn't like that feeling of being fired and I wanted to learn the business So you just went? And I went and I wanted to, someone said to me, this is where they have TV, all of the the television station owners meet with all the people who produce and distribute television shows. So I went there and I met a guy who became like a, a second father. Uh, there, Al. I met a lot of amazing people, but this gentleman, Al Massini, and I. It was at the New York Hilton, and, yeah. and uh, right there in New York on the Avenue of the Americas. And uh, I went up there, whatever floor he was on, and, I'm, yeah. and I walk into the suite. They say, I said, "Who's the best?" They said, "Al Massini." I walk in there, and he's pitching these guys, and he's telling them, "Here's what we have. We have the biggest movie star in the world on our pilot." And it's on the set of Smokey and the Bandit, and his name is Burt Reynolds. And the show, I'm going to tape the show every day at 12:30, and I'm going to put it on the bird. People go, "What's the bird?" He goes, "Satellite." They go, "What's a satellite?" It's new technology, mm. and it's going to. I'm going to put it on the bird at two o'clock, and everybody's going to air the same show at seven o'clock that night. They go, "What's the name of the show, Al?" And Al Massini said, "The name of the show that's going to start in September is called Entertainment Tonight." And I watched him pitch Entertainment Tonight and sell it in and I thought wow this is amazing I love this Mm. and I introduced myself and I said sir I hear you the best where are we having dinner (laughs) and he said I'm with my clients and I'm gonna save me a seat and uh, I learned a lot from him. And I watched him sell Entertainment Tonight and Star Search and Lifestyles Rich and Famous and Solid Gold. He did the first miniseries, A Woman Called Golda, about Golda Meir. Uh, Jimmy Hoffa, he did a miniseries about Jenny, Jimmy, Jimmy Hoffa. He was just amazing. And what- Syndicated television. Syndica- king of syndication co- television. And what that is, I started my company. I was able to learn how to start my company from my dining room table. And I said, I did a one-hour special where I interviewed seven of my six or seven of my funny friends, and I made a one-hour special. And I said, you know what? I'm going to make this a, a weekly one-hour show. That's the one I saw? That's the one you saw. That is the one you saw. And what it was- Just you sitting by yourself with another guy. Talking, talking to And comedian. somebody fucking with the camera. That's it. And so I- what, <laughs> and 14 minutes of commercial time, yeah. and I gave it- I said to the TV stations, I'm going to have 14 minutes of commercial time. I'm going to keep seven minutes. You, television station, you keep seven minutes. You sell your seven minutes to local advertisers, banks, supermarkets, car dealers. I'm going to sell my seven minutes to national advertisers, to, you know, car companies and soda pop. I get it. Right? Fast food. So you got to sell this to local affiliates. Yes. So I had to, I sat at my- Markets. I sat at my dining room table from sunup to sundown. Right. Sat at my dining room table- and I called all 1,300 television stations. Hardest thing I've ever done. And I asked them to carry my weekly one-hour show for free, Entertainers with Byron Allen, where I'm interviewing people. And this is in 93. Mm. And literally, I got about 50 no's from each of them, 50,000 no's, 40, 50,000 no's from each of them to squeeze out 150 yeses. Because I needed a, a market from in every market from New York to Bangor, Maine. I needed, you needed one station. I needed one station in each market. Right. So I needed a station. So I spent a year doing that, and uh, finally I had a lineup, 
And there was a company that said they were going to sell my advertising time if I had gotten 75% of the country, Tribune. And I called them back about, and I said, look, I didn't get 75% of the country. I got 85% of the country or 90% of the country. Yeah. They said, well, we changed our mind. We're not going to sell your time. And I went, uh-oh. And because they were going to give me an advance of $400,000. Right. So I could go into production on my show. Oh, so you were and, fucked. Uh, totally. After a year of my life yeah. of sitting there. And the thing that really happened was about t- about a week or two before they told me they weren't going to give me this 400 grand. Yeah. Uh, my mother was doing my paperwork and, uh, and I, I would go and look at the clearance list and if I sold a station uh, she would send them a one page contract and then put the clear, put them on the clearance list and I knew if that market had been cleared I didn't need to call that market call the other market right. right? so I noticed that she had not put down uh, uh, Wilkes-Barre or maybe it was Harrisburg I can't remember and I said mom why did you not put that station I got that station it's in cleared. Pennsylvania yeah, so yeah I got it cleared right and she goes, no, I don't have the paperwork. I'm going, Mom, you got to be a lot more organized here. These are hard clearances to get. You're messing it up. Yeah. You got to be clear. She goes, honey, I didn't get the paperwork. It didn't happen. They didn't. So I called the guy back. I called the guy up. I said, Bob, it looks as if my executive assistant misplaced your paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> so we're just going to send my it My mommy. <laughs> exactly. So, so he goes, nope, nope. He said, uh, no, it's not going to happen. I go, what? Now, that's very rare, Mark. Right. TV stations, they don't go back on their word like yeah. that. Yeah. He said, some guys in Paramount were here, and they told me that you were calling me from your dining room table and that that show wasn't going to be there. And if it was there, it wasn't going to last any more than three weeks. What? And so I gave them your time period, and they're going to have Saturday night at 11. Who was that? Uh, it was a show that Paramount was selling. I don't even remember, right? So, they so that's, a comp- that's how competition works in the syndicated market. That's exactly right. It's so, just like someone's got another show that no one's ever heard of. And, and, and they just jammed and they just undermined me. And so the Paramount, so I said, how many guys? So I said, Bob, how many guys did Paramount send? And they said, three. And I said, did they have on nice suits? He goes, yeah. I go, yeah, those Paramount guys get paid a lot of money. I said, so listen up, Bob. They're right. I am calling you from my dining room table. And I am in my underwear. But, <laughs> but here's the difference. I want you to understand something. The show is going to be there. And because of what the boys at Paramount told you, tell the boys at Paramount Studios, I am never going to cancel that show. And that show is going to be on until the end of time because I will never let the boys from Paramount walk into any television station in America again and cast doubt on what I can and what I will or will not do. Yeah. So you will never, ever, ever renege on a deal with me. Right. So just let the boys at Paramount know this conversation has taken place. He goes, I will. So I put the show on. And so then I hang up the phone. And this is two, Entertainers with Byron Allen. Yeah, Entertainers with Byron Allen. And I hang up the phone. And two week, a week or two later, Tribune says, I'm not sending you the 400 grand. And I thought about that conversation I had about the boys at Paramount yeah. saying that I wasn't going to get on the air. And I said, I'm going forward. And I didn't have the money to go forward. And so I had to figure out how to go into production on the show. So there were days I didn't eat. There were days they turned my phone off. It was pretty lo-fi, though, wasn't it? Yeah, but I mean, I didn't have two nickels to go and do the show. I had to go pay the cameraman. I had to pay the editor. But literally, it must have looked like there was one cameraman. But that's all I could afford. (laughs) I know. You you think I could afford two cameramen? I was over budget with one cameraman. Right. So then I go and pay the sound guy. (laughs) You want sound? Okay, I guess I got to pay this guy. I had to pay the satellite guy. I had to pay. And I had to pay the... It was was insane. So, you know, what I did was I, I got the show up and running. 
running. And I'll never forget, I, there were, I didn't pay my mortgage. I was calling people from pay phones. Yeah. And I timed it where I wouldn't pay my mortgage. And the lady at the bank, I'll never forget, she was so sweet. She goes, you keep coming on my desk. She goes, what's going on? And I always believe it's better to just be honest and yeah. tell it all and tell right. it early. Yeah. And I said, well, I said that uh, I'm financing a show and uh, things are tight. And she goes, okay. And she goes, that's why you keep paying me every 89 days? I say, yeah, because I'm floating my mortgage. And she goes, she go, I have to pay my cameraman. I have to buy tape and I have to get the show up on the, get it to the TV stations. She goes, okay, I understand. She goes, listen, she goes, whatever you do, just pay on the 89th day. Because if it goes to day 90, it's going to go to the lady who sits next to me and you don't want to talk to Josephine. <laughs> i say, okay, I don't want to be. And so I would put it on my calendar and I run to the bank and I pay my mortgage right there on that yeah. 89th day. And I had to learn how to sell my advertising time. And I went and I started selling my ad time to 1-800-SPRAY-ON-HAIR, sure. 1-800-ABS. This so, show that you're doing right now, our first advertisers <laughs> was Adam and Eve Sex Toys. There it is. So whoever's willing to advertise, if I would have taken their money, I probably did take their money. So I took whatever I could. And then finally, I sat down with all the heads of the movie studios yeah. and I said, look, I'm having your movie stars on. Right. And I'm showing your clips, your trailers. I'm a, basically, I'm a one hour commercial saying, watch the, go see these movies. And I said, you guys are spending 200 million to 600 million a year each. <laughs> Give me some money. I said, will you please support me so I can be there to support you? Yeah. And I signed up all of the movie studios. And I, and I thought, this is perfect. I signed up the movie studios and I said, this is how you do it, business. It's not about me. It's about them. Well, that's right. And that's how you had all those clips. And it was mostly about the thing they were pushing. That's that, right. Right. I that's remember. Right. And, that's yeah. why, and that's why the movie, movie studios supported me. And then once I solidified the movie industry, yeah. I went on the road like a comic. Yeah. And I went and sat down with all the soft drink companies. And I solidified the soft drink industry. Then I went and did automotive. And then I went and did packaged goods. And then I went and did pharmaceuticals. And I went industry by industry, corporation by corporation, chief marketing officer by chief marketing officer. Right. Board of directors. And I with went- With that show. With that show. And I introduced myself for about a 10-year period to every advertiser in America that had a budget greater than $2. And I just sat and with And you them. built those relationships I built those with rela that show, and now you use them for all your shows. And then all of a sudden, I said, if I can do one show, yeah. and I have all these relationships with every television station in the country, and I have all these relationships with every advertiser in the country, I can put on another show. And I kept dialing and putting shows. What was shows. the next show? And the next show, I think, was uh, I did uh, The American Athlete. And How the, long was that Byron Allen with the entertainers on? The entertain like I told, like I told Bob, I said, tell it's the boys. for a long time. It's still on the air 25 years later. <laughs> I told Bob, you tell the boys at you Paramount. You're still doing it? Because I, I told Bob, you tell the boys at I Paramount, I'm never canceling this show. Because <laughs> what he said to him, no television station will ever be able to say, well, somebody walked in from this studio and said this. Uh, now what that's they the say, only reason you do it? That's it. And, I, and, and, and what they say, you know what the TV station says? Say now what? to the studios. What? Byron Allen never cancels the show. <laughs> that was one of the greatest. I'm going to put this in my book one day. Because it was one you of haven't the. Haven't written a book yet. I haven't written a book yet, but I'm going to put it in my book one day. So I just kept putting one show on after the next. And next thing I know, I looked up 43 television shows and over 5,000 hours of content, and one of the largest privately held television libraries in the world. You, I, yeah. I never stopped selling to these television stations. And I said, I'll fill that time period. I'll fill this time period. And I kept producing. And I produced, I took my grandfather and my father's automotive roots. And I said, I'm going to produce television the way they make 
cars. I'm going to create a factory. Instead of a car factory, it's a content factory. Yeah. And we're going to do it where we control the cost and we control the quality. So we're going to do it in a way where we control, we own the equipment, you own the cameras, you own the editing, so you control cost and you have a staff, and the staff this week can work on this show, this next week they can work on that show, and you rotate them the way you take a car on a factory floor. I remember when I did Comics Unleashed, it was like in a warehouse or something. That's exactly right. You know what? It was in a warehouse. You got it, buddy. When you did Comics Unleashed, I remember that. You were great. So Comics Unleashed, let's, I mean, okay, so this is, I signed- Was that the second show? No, it wasn't the second show, but I signed. So Comics Unleashed. How did Comics Unleashed become about? I noticed that you know when we would do all the comedians, yeah, we would all go eat it, you know, at you know at you know Canner's Deli but or that somewhere. Was, but that was another one of those shows where I'm watching. I'm like. Byron Allen's still on TV <laughs> in the middle of the night. The Why middle. do I keep seeing Byron Allen in the middle of the night? That was all they would give me. You start, <laughs> you take crumbs and you make a gourmet meal. That's it. what you do. So, so you well, talking well, to yeah, canters? So, yeah, yeah, so we go. And I noticed that all of the comedians, everybody was so, was much funnier. Yeah. Sitting at Canners yeah. or sitting at a restaurant than at the comedy than, store, than at the comedy yeah. store, or the improv, and because all the comedians want to really show the other comedians, yeah. I'm witty, I'm sharp, right? And I said, you know what? This is a television show. I'm going to get comedians together, yeah. and I'm going to make sure that they just have a wonderful environment where we can be funny. And at that time, we were having a tough time. Comedians were having a, a tough time getting on late night television. Oh, right. In the eight, when, yeah. when, when was it? 80s, 90s? 90s. And oh, we okay. weren't getting on, early late 90s, right? Yeah. We weren't getting on as much as Johnny Carson used to put us sure, on. Sure, sure. So I said, you know what? I'm going to do, do a comedy talk show for just comedians. And so that's what we did. And so we, we put that show on. It was so funny because like to do your show, because I've done all those shows, right? Mm -hmm. But with your show, there's like four comics. Right. And, you know, the segment producer would just, you know, ask you which bits you want to do. And literally, your, your, your questions were just short of like, what's that bit you do about... Uh, oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. I'm throwing you alley-oops. I'm like, Mark, slam dunk this. Yeah, yeah. Go I, I heard you went to the airport yeah, yesterday. Th that's exactly... I mean, my transitions were just as smooth as ice. Do the joke you said you were going to do. It. That basically, Mark, give us a routine. That's basically it. Yeah, yeah. But you know what? I sign all the checks, right? So I'm signing the checks, and one day I'm signing checks, and one of the checks was for air. Yeah. And I called up Barry Ilovich, my president of production. And I said, what's this check I'm signing for air? Yeah. And, and he goes, and it was like 17,000 bucks. Wow. What is it? And I, he goes, well, after seven o'clock, they charge you for air. What? I go, yeah. What are you talking about? I, that's exactly what I said to him. I, we were at a studio. We were like at Sunset in one of the studios. Up yeah. I go, Barry, let me just make sure I'm, I understand. So this <laughs> check that I'm about to sign for 17 grand yeah. was for air because we don't we have to pay for air after 7 o'clock? <laughs> yeah. He goes, yeah. And I go, okay. So I sign the check. Yeah. I go online. Yeah. <laughs> and I look for a warehouse. <laughs> that, was, that was where I was at. <laughs> That's where you were at. I it find, was a real, real warehouse. It was a real warehouse. I find a warehouse <laughs> for like 80,000 80, square feet. I couldn't believe feet. it. It was uh, like, where are we going to shoot this? What's a fucking warehouse? In a warehouse. And I said, and I and I got the warehouse. I went and rented the warehouse. And yeah. I said, they don't charge us for air. And he goes, well, we don't have dressing rooms. So I said, uh -huh. so we'd have dressing rooms. I said, okay, no problem. I go online. Yeah. I go to Mike's RV, yeah. and I look at the stats, right? And I said, uh, I said, I want to get these, uh, I want to get, uh, is this, uh, I want this RV, does it look just like this? Is yeah. It? He goes, yeah, the guy says it looks like this. And so I said, okay, I need to get 18 of them. So the guy- <laughs> You rented them or you bought them? Bought them. So yeah. I bought them. So the yeah. guy hangs up on me. <laughs> 
So I call back and I go, no, 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 no. And, and I, I, the guy's name was Carlos, right? Yeah. And I'm like, Carlos, no, no, no. I said, Carlos, I need 18 of those, like right away. He hangs up like a second time. So I call back, I go, Carlos, do not hang up the phone. I said, I, I, I have a show yeah. and I need dressing rooms. And right now I'm paying 2,000 a week for 18 trailers. I'm paying like $36,000 a week for these 18 trailers to be out there. But I said, I need these trailers. And I said, I need them immediately. And sure enough, I think he's still salesman of the year, like four years later. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he says, it's the you biggest order. I made his life. He goes, it's the biggest order in the history of Mike's art. I go, buddy, <laughs> I just need the trailers. So that's how we do it. We said, look, let's be efficient in how we make the content. You still but, shooting that thing? Not, uh, yes, yes, yes. We are still shooting. Unleashed? Comics Unleashed, we have some that are still in the can that have to be edited. It's going to be, it's, going to be, it's still in production. It is. Right? So we're going to go back and shoot some And you got this new one, the one oh, that- la- Oh, yeah. We have the new one, Funny You Should Ask. Funny You Should funny Ask. Funny You Should Ask is great. Funny You Should Ask is, a, it's, you know, I, I really learned that from being a comedy writer. There was that rule for every question, there's a funny answer. And also you learn, but like these guys, the, the you know- your mentor in the syndicated world, the Messini guy, and the stuff you learned from Schlatter. Oh, yeah. And, the you know, in terms of, you know, what it takes to actually put on television. Because you run a pretty lean operation, right? Very lean. And, you know, you have to be very efficient. And, and how many a- properties do you own uh, in syndicated TV properties? Uh, I have a little over 43 shows, about 43 shows on broadcast television. There are a number of shows people don't even know they're mine, like Beautiful Homes and Great Estates and yeah. Pets.TV and on and on and on. So I just really, be, you know, I really... Really immerse myself into producing content and doing it like a factory. As, I, as a matter of fact, I even did a day crew and a night crew for editing because when my I remember being a kid and I used to my mom and I we had one car and my yeah. dad and we used to take my dad to the Ford factory at night because my mom would use the car during the day and my dad would get a ride home from somebody. Right. And I remember thinking, well, yeah, if these edit bays are sitting here, let's have a day crew work from nine to six and a night crew work from seven until it's eight in the morning. But what about now, what, what is your quality control? I mean, what are you trying to do? Is it just Emmy a money? Award, Emmy Award winning producers. You know, we've been nominated for Emmys. We've won an Emmy. You, you can't get those time periods and keep those time periods unless the quality is there. Mm. Uh, the ratings are there. So we've been really diligent about that. So, and we're very proud of that. And after getting that much content, I, re- I was reading the New York Times and I read where they were, uh, Verizon was gonna spend uh, about $23 billion to bring yeah. fiber to the home. And they said, we're gonna offer 150 HD channels. So I called Verizon, I said, I understand you're gonna offer 150 HD channels. They said, yes, I'd like to offer you 10 of them. They said, well, how many? They said, how many do you have now? I said, zero. <laughs> I said, I know you're thinking I'm cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, but uh, I don't, you know, they said, well, I said, but before you call security, let me explain what I'm thinking. And they said, what are you thinking? I said, well, you know, I'm originally born in Detroit, Michigan. And I said, my dad and my grandfather, they tried to put 36 hours in a yeah. 24 hour day. And I never saw so much waste until I got into TV. I would go out on the road and, and I would do real people. And I'm not saying this about all the crews, yeah. but some of the crews were trying to figure out how to, how to, you know, shoot for two hours and get paid for 12. Sure. Right? And yep. I said, I want to reverse that. I said, so what I want to do is I want to bring that Henry Ford mentality to television and be extremely efficient. So I said, when we send a crew, a, a, we send camera crews to Pebble Beach right. to shoot the car show, Concourse de Elegance, yep. for our 24-hour car network, cars.tv, I don't want them to just shoot the content for cars.tv. Shoot the chefs 
and Pebble Beach for our cooking channel, Recipe.tv, and shoot the resorts up there for our travel channel, MyDestination.tv, and shoot what's going on in the pet community up there for our pet channel, Pets.tv, and shoot (laughs) all the movie stars up there for our entertainment channel, ES.tv. And they said, you know what? And for my show, Entertainers with Byron Allen, which is on every week. It's on every week. (laughs) And and they said, you know what? We've heard a lot of pitches. We've heard a lot of pitches, but we've never heard one like that. They said that we really, they said, quote, we think that's brilliant. They said, we're not going to give you 10 networks. We're going to give you six. And we made history. With the stroke of a pen, we launched six 24-hour HD networks on Verizon Files. Went back, did a seventh network because we ended up becoming the largest. And where can you watch them? They're on AT&T. They're on Dish. They're on Verizon Files. Right? So then we launched our seventh network, Justice Central, a 24-hour court channel, you know, court shows. Making people believe there's justice in the world. That's exactly right. (laughs) And then a a buddy of mine came to me, and he, well, he was uh, was running a company that satellited our networks. He said, can we have dinner? And I said, sure. And we went to dinner, and he said, you should buy the Weather Channel. And I said, uh, he goes, and I know, he goes, I know you're not thinking about the weather because you're in L.A., and it's always 80 degrees and sunny. Right. He goes, but the way you think. And the way you operate and how efficient you are, he goes, you are the best person to buy the Weather Channel. And you aren't thinking about the Weather Channel because you're here. He goes, but I ran the Weather Channel before this job. He goes, I was, I think he was the chief operating officer. He said, it's a phenomenal business. It prints money. And the people who own it are ready to go. It's owned by Bain and Blackstone. And Bain and Blackstone combined, and also uh, Comcast Combined, they manage over $500 billion, and they're ready to go, and you should buy it. And I said, okay, and I happened to know uh, one of the main people at, at Blackstone, Yeah. and we got ourselves into the process, and I said, I'm interested in buying the Weather Channel, Yeah. and uh, we got it done. And we bought it last year, uh, March of uh, last but, year. Okay, so you, uh, so this guy, I'm, I'm sure this is a bigger conversation. But what do you, what, when you, when okay, I, I understand that you're doing all this different stuff. But when someone, what do you, when you buy the Weather Channel, what's your plan? What's your plan? Keep telling people the weather. And well, keep, I get that. And, and but keep I mean, people safe. How and, do you, okay. And, and keep people, that's, it, listen, it is such a, it, it's the number one weather news network in America with no close But second. do you do anything different though? Do, do you expand that business? Yeah. I mean, we're going to expand it. We're going to do a little bit more and, 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 you know, around the world. Okay. We just announced we're going to do uh, the weather channel in Espanol. Okay. Uh, because I don't want language to be a barrier for getting the information you need to protect yourself and your loved ones and your sure. property. Uh, we've been doing a lot of good stuff with it. We're very excited about it. I mean, the weather channel is just, it's, it's really something. I mean, when you, when you have something like a hurricane comes on, come along, people don't go to their phone. I mean, the phone's great for checking your temperature. So you were sitting there 14, 15 years old writing jokes for Jimmy Walker. Yeah. Did you, was this your dream <laughs> to own the weather channel? No, 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 just turn, it just turned out to be a phenomenal, phenomenal business. Well, what is this court case? Ah, the court case. Great question. The court case. So <clears throat> here's how this came about. So I was very supportive of uh, Senator Obama. Yeah. And he goes on to become president. I remember. You remember that? So mm-hmm. then, uh, so President Obama, so his uh, administration came to me and he, they said, listen, uh, Comcast is trying to get bigger. They, they want to buy Time Warner Cable. Right. And this company is trying to get bigger. They yeah. want to buy this. And, you know, everyone, There's the Obama yeah. people. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, so they're, they're people, right? So they come to me. And they say, we want to know, are these good 
corporate citizens. And I said, do you want the honest answer? Or so you you, want they asked you as a consultant in a way. They, and, they yeah. like, Byron Allen's been doing business with these people and for 20, 30 years. And he's out there. Right. Right? So, and they said, you know, what's the story on it? Yeah. And I said, do you want the honest answer or do you want the Hollywood answer? Mm-hmm. They said, we want the honest answer. And I said, the answer is not no, it's hell no. Mm. I don't think they're good corporate citizens. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, how do you arrive at that? I said, mathematically. I said, the MVPDs, they spend approximately $70 billion. What are those? Um, I'm sorry. Most thank you. Uh, yeah, right. Um, uh, it's the satellite companies, yeah. the cable companies, yeah. and the telephone companies. Okay. So let's think cable in this particular case. They spend approximately $70 billion a year licensing cable networks to be on their platform. $70 billion a year. And not one penny of that is going to African-American-owned media. Uh-huh. And a lot of that money is coming out of these communities. Mm-hmm. I said, you have Hispanic, you know, Spanish language networks, and the people who own them can't even speak Spanish. So maybe there's a concept where Spanish language networks could perhaps be owned by people who actually are Spanish and they Hispanic and they actually speak Spanish. Right. Uh, you have networks where maybe we should have a scenario where people of the gay community should own the networks that depict them, but you don't have a scenario where the ownership of those networks, not to be confused with putting African-American faces on the, on the, on the screen, but who owns it? Because mm-hmm. the ownership means you actually have a seat at the table and you're actually able to control how you're produced and you're depicted. And it's truly more of a democracy because you have a voice and you're at the table. So they're not even making those things available for, That's for right. the ownership? Is That's what right. You're okay. That's right. And so I had a lot of friends. <clears throat> I had gone to them to license Comcast. I had gone to Comcast to license a number of my networks to them. And it was always no, 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 no. And I went to them for a good 10 years, right? But were these, uh, were these were black shows? No, no, not okay. even. So comedy.tv, yeah. right. our okay. comedy network, okay. right? Uh, pets.tv, sure. you, know, all, you know, no. So You're just trying to get in business with Comcast. That's right. And, right. and own, own the network, right. own the content, right? So I noticed that they, you know, they weren't doing business with uh, a, a number of folks who came to me, big, big stars, who came to me and said, I went there, I went there, I pitched some of the biggest stars, some of the most talented people on the planet. Uh. No, 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 no. Now, the one that really upset me the most wasn't even a network that I had pitched. Right. The net, the one that upset me the most was a guy who was the number two executive at BET. He went to them to do the Black College Sports Network mm-hmm. in partnership with all of the black colleges, all of the historical black colleges and universities. Yes. And in that partnership, it would have made millions and millions, if not billions, for these historical black colleges. Right. And would have educated all of these kids for free or definitely subsidized them in a significant way because they're, they're, they're running on fumes. Yeah. And they turned it down. And it wasn't even my network, Mark. Yeah. But when I watched them turn that network down, the yeah. Black College Sports Network in partnership with over 100 historical black colleges and universities, yeah. that upset me. And I just said, you know what? I'm calling them out on it. It's just wrong. Mm-hmm. And I'd had my experience. 
And uh, my lawyer said, well, you know, I said, I don't like what I see what's going on with the Asian community and how they're being treated. They don't own their networks. The gay community, the Hispanic community, they said, well, you can't speak for them because you're not them. You only have standing as an African-American. So you can do you can sue on your point of view and your experience. So we filed using the Civil Rights Act. And this is something really important for all of your listeners, because this is a game changer. I use the Civil Rights Act of 1866. Mm -hmm. The Civil Rights Act of 1866, Section 1981, is the very first civil rights act in the history of America. Mm -hmm. It started civil rights in America and has been on the books for 153 years. Mm -hmm. The slaves were freed in December of 1865. And they put this law on the books to make sure that there was an economic pathway for all Americans and that they knew there was going to be a challenge. And they said, we are to have fair contracting for all Americans mm -hmm. in this act. Uh, and it's specifically written that way. Right. So we use that Civil Rights Act and we sued Comcast for 20 billion dollars mm -hmm. and they we went to court, and I could not believe the defense that they used. It was astounding to me. They used the Hurley case, and the Hurley case was a case where some parade organizers in Boston told a group of gay people who wanted to be in their parade, yeah. you cannot be in our parade because you're gay. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the parade organizers, their legal argument was that it infringes on our First Amendment rights. It infringes on our freedom of expression. So there was a serious miscarriage of justice where they, the parade organizers, were able to use the First Amendment to discriminate against gay people. And that, that was the decision of the Supreme Court. So I'm sitting downtown in Los Angeles and Comcast and Charter are saying to the judge, well, there's the precedent of the Hurley case and we want to use the First Amendment and that precedent. And Judge, judge Wu said, listen, the First Amendment does not give you a pathway to discriminate. It's wrong. And I could not believe the number one <laughs> right. cable operator and the number Comcast and the number two cable operator, Charter, were trying to use the First Amendment as a pathway to discriminate. And I'm thinking to myself, you should not be uh, trying to celebrate this decision, the Hurley decision. You should be denouncing it and yeah. certainly not trying to supersize it as the number one, number two cable. We're trying to use it as a precedent by which you're going to shut Byron Allen down. Or all minorities. Yeah. All minorities. Right. So we end up going to the Ninth Circuit. And the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in our favor not once, but twice. And they said, no, the First Amendment does not give you a pathway to discriminate. So that it should have been a done deal. Should have been a done deal. But then they said, and also the other thing they wanted, this is the thing that I, it was truly astounding. They, they attacked the Civil Rights, Comcast and Charter attacked the Civil Rights Act of 1866. And they said, we want to make it so that minorities in this country can't use that Civil Rights Act. So you can't use it. So what they said is, we want it to be a scenario that Mark can't use this Civil Rights Act unless Mark can prove that we discriminated against him 
100% because he is he's black. And yeah, if he, I've never been black before. That's, I know, that's exciting. I, but that's exciting, yeah, right? Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's exciting until yeah. the police come. Yeah. Right. So the, <laughs> so so he he says so so now if if it's 100%, you can never prove it because they could actually say to you, "Hey, Mark, sure. it's 99% because you're you're black, but it's 1% because you have tennis shoes." Sure. So you can't use the law. Right. That's the but for standard. I get it. So they're arguing to use the but for standard. And the Supreme Court said, "We're not going to listen to Byron's case." But we are going to use this opportunity to look at the Civil Rights Act of 1866. So what people think, they're listening to my case. It's right. because of my case. The Supreme Court used this as an opportunity to look at the Civil Rights Act of 1866. So what does that mean, though, for the case? Well, here's what's, it's a bigger problem than that. Because here's what will happen. They went, Comcast, can you believe this, went and solicited Donald Trump's Department of Justice and got an amicus brief to support their position that the Civil Rights Act should be eviscerated, rolled back, dismantled to 1865. So this is a bigger problem because if you make that Civil Rights Act at a standard where it can't be used, you will have basically flushed over a hundred million minorities in this country down the drain because now you don't have any legal protection. And what I've said to David Cohen and Brian Roberts of Comcast, please rescind your petition. We don't want to go to the Supreme Court on November 13th, 2019 and have at risk the original Civil Rights Act of 1866, Section 1981 in a Donald Trump era and a Donald Trump Supreme Court with a Donald Trump DOJ amicus brief against us. We don't want to see this happen so it's a it's not a good thing and so we've been saying to comcast hey you guys have television stations you service the community you have cable systems that service the community but this is not servicing america when you are challenging a civil rights act to the point where it's 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 so narrow folks can't use it so what what what's going to happen hopefully they will rescind it and if they don't rescind it then we're going to show up on November 13th and fight. I've invested millions of dollars and I will continue to invest millions of dollars to fight for civil rights for all Americans. Yeah. And to answer your question, my lawyers, and I have amazing lawyers, uh, my lawyer, Dean Chemerinsky uh, of Berkeley, is the foremost scholar on this. He says it doesn't, you know, whatever they decide, the Supreme Court, you have enough, Byron, to go forward. You meet the but-for standard and you meet, obviously, the motivating factor. And he filed me at a but-for, at the higher standard. So I'm not worried about my case. This is what I'm worried about. I don't want this statute to be eviscerated so that over 100 million minorities today cannot use it and the millions and millions of minorities not yet born Cannot use well, it. What, why wouldn't uh, Comcast and Charter just you know keep going to eviscerate it if they got the amicus brief? What, what you're just going to you know politely to stop? Uh, no, I think it's you not think just it was me. a threat. No, no, it's not just me. Others. I mean, so the Los Angeles Urban League. Michael Lawson wrote a very strong letter. 
And he said, listen, if you don't uh, if you don't reverse this, we're going to boycott you. We're going to go after your advertisers. We're going to go after your subscribers. We're going to go after your investors. We're going to go after your licenses. You know, you can't, you know, put in jeopardy uh, the civil rights of over 100 million people. This is now the point where everybody has to lean in and protect their civil rights. But wasn't the reason they were doing it to to, you know, to threaten I think the reason that yeah, the reason they were doing it was to take away anything that helped me move along. And, right. then, and the Supreme Court said, we're not listening to the case. The Supreme Court said, we agree with so the nicer. This, was that a backfiring to you? Did this backfire in your face in that way? No, it didn't oh. backfire in my face. I mean, this I didn't file the petition to go to the Supreme right. Court. They did. Uh, they did. And I didn't go to Donald Trump to get uh, a support to go against the civil rights. Right. But um, I guess I'm just saying, because you, I mean, theoretically, you know, the two courts that honored your success and yes. the win was should have been enough That's but right. so th- as corporate entities with a tremendous amount of power and money like yeah they're like well fuck it we'll teach them all a lesson that's exactly right and that's and and that's wrong because at the same time you're teaching these folks a lesson, you're making billions and billions of dollars off of them. Off of them yeah. And and then that's fine. You just need to tell these people, hey, thanks a lot for paying me twenty five hundred dollars a year on your cable bill and broadband. But by the way, your civil rights are going to get blown out here in the Supreme Court forever, forever. I mean, and for your kids and your grandkids. And so this is one of those where mm. it's like, hey, people, you need to wake up and you need to say respectfully. Can you do me a can you do me a solid here, Comcast, with your friend Donald Trump writing you an amicus brief? Can you pull out? We don't need you in the Supreme Court at this time in this era, talking in a Donald Trump era, talking about civil rights and possibly taking it back to 1865, which they would like to do, which is what they would love to do. And uh, it was astounding. It was astounding that they would go after this civil rights statute. It's like, come on, Comcast, you don't need to do that. You don't need to go after this statute. These aren't, but as you said at the beginning, you know, of this conversation yeah. about this topic, yes. you know, are they honest? Are they decent corporate citizens? That's exa- That's the question I was asked. And I said, I will do something about it. They said, most people are afraid to do something because they're afraid of retaliation. They won't speak up. I said, I'll speak up. I'm a comedian. That's and, then, and this is what you're up against now. This is what we're up against now. You right. Know, this right. Is now we. it's, it's we. we. Yeah. It's we because at the end of the day, my case is fine. What's not fine, and I'm part of that, over 100 million minorities who are now at risk of losing this very important civil rights statute. And the lawyer for for Comcast actually said in an interview, oh, it's a technicality, it's just a yawn. And it's so disingenuous and so disrespectful to think that having your civil rights reviewed in this... Would this have happened if you didn't have this case, though? No, it would not have happened. So do you feel bad about what's happening? No, I didn't do this. I know you didn't I, do I it. I didn't but... do it. I didn't do this. I didn't right. go to the Supreme Court and I didn't have, I, I didn't it. take I it, to, it and I, I didn't ask it. Donald Trump. I get it. Hey Donald no, Trump, put it. on my jersey. I get and by it. the way, I mean, let's be clear. Yeah. If Donald Trump is lining up with you, you might want to put it in reverse. Sure. Okay. Sure. If, on civil rights. No, I get it. On no, civil I'm, rights. I'm with you. I'm just like I'm trying to personalize it. Like if I was in your shoes fighting for what was right, and then they turn around and they bring it to the Supreme Court and Supreme Court's like, yeah, we're not going to deal with that case, but we're going to just reassess <laughs> the Civil Rights Act of 1866, the very first like, one. If I were you, I'd be like, oh, fuck. <laughs> Wait, what do you got to do that for? Yeah, well, yeah, and I'm look, I'm, I'm into this thing for millions, yeah. millions, and I will continue to invest millions to get this right. All right. And I will never let up. And I look at this point, the power of the people, the power of the people can lean in and tell people how they feel. And that's what American people have to say to Comcast. And, and and say, look, you know what? 
let, let, look, no. yeah. But let's not do this night. Absolutely. And look where you are. You started with 14 years old writing for Jimmy Walker, <laughs> and now you're fighting the fight to 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 to, to save civil rights <laughs> for the entire country. That's right. All right. There it is. There you is. With the Supreme Court. With the Supreme Court. And then and then what? What are we looking at? Uh, president in 2024? What are we thinking? You're going to be president? You're running? What are you okay, thinking? 24, 28? Yeah, if what you want to run, go for it. Dude, you should do it. Get in now. Yeah, we're 30? I don't know. Get, get I don't, 20, I don't, do it now. You know, I got We'll, we'll, we'll have or, some You fun. know, better yet, might maybe start opening for bands again. Uh, that's it. That's what I want. I want to go back on the road. I want to eat at all these amazing truck stops. There you go. And I want to get back on my uh, yeah. Greyhound bus. With Smokey uh, Robinson. With, with you sm- probably could get out. He's still out there. I, I love Smokey. I love all the point. I love, love, you know, Julie Andrews. Come on. Yeah. I'm on tour. Dolly Parton, the oh, best. No. I think she's in development over at Netflix. It'd be interesting. Yeah. Have, but you still interview these people. You still talk to everybody. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, it's quite a journey, Byron. Thank you for talking to me. It's great hanging out with you. Yeah, You're the man. best. And congratulations on all your success. I appreciate that. You too. So what do you think of that? That's Byron Allen, man. He's got a lot going on. The Weather Channel. Yep. A lot of TV projects. Uh, and his company has just launched this new app, the Local Now app, which it's a mobile app. It's got uh, a streaming network with lifestyle news, weather, traffic, entertainment. I, he's, he's got his fingers in everything, that guy. And he's still running Comics Unleashed. I will talk to you later from the garage. And uh, no music today because I'm not home. Boomer lives! Boomer lives!